and good morning and good evening or good afternoon, wherever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when we consider things from the near, near future to the far shores, literally, of infinity and twisted dimensions and strange politics and bizarre natural occurrences in deep space and unusual things tonight happening in low Earth orbit. Welcome. Um, we're going to have a very intriguing show because we're going to be delving into something that literally has never happened before and began about two days ago. And I will explain what I mean by that as we go through the morning. Um, first, let me direct your attention, those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, to our website, theothersideofmidnight.com. If you go there and you click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, right now, the Russians are making the first live-action space movie in space. Click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Under the guest page, you will see the usual fast links to items. Click on my name. We're leading again the news tonight with La Palma. Uh, I hope everyone, particularly on the East Coast of the United States, and in Europe and in Canada and in the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast and in Northern South America are watching La Palma carefully because it's doing very curious things. It began erupting uh, several weeks ago. This little island, this volcano off the Northwest coast of Africa. And why we're all so fixated uh, on this is because of what could happen. If, if there's a sufficiently large volcanic event, if there's a, a large enough swelling of the island due to underground magma pressures, which is the way uh, volcanoes work, uh, based on what happened back in 1949, which was a major earthquake, which literally split the island in about two, and so one half is poised at an angle against the other half and is kind of being held together by friction. Uh, if there's a sufficient seismic event, the half that is sundered will slide, ultimately at several hundred miles an hour, into the Atlantic Ocean, 500 billion tons of basalt. And that will raise a huge wave. In fact, some estimates I've seen that the initial wave raise would be something like 3,000 feet high. Let me repeat that, 3,000 feet high. And then that wave would take off at the speed of sound in water um, at several hundred miles an hour, close to six, 700 miles an hour in all directions from little tiny La Palma. And it would reach the um, western coasts of Europe very soon, in a few hours. It would reach the eastern coast of the United States in between six and nine hours. It would take longer for the wave to get around the uh, you know, tip of Florida into the Gulf of Mexico. But let's say 10, 12 hours for that, uh, same amount for Caribbean islands, maybe a little longer for the northern coast of South America. Why is all this important? Because by the time it reaches the continental shelf offshore of the continents of the 
Atlantic basin, that wave could rise again to something approaching, according to some geological estimates, a thousand feet high. I mean, you all saw this in the movie Deep Impact, except uh, on that occasion, the wave was caused by an impact of an asteroid literally just off the East Coast. So there was no warning. In this case, if you've got your phones tuned to La Palma, to the seismic events, if uh, you're tuned to the uh, item number one in my links tonight, La Palma Canary Islands updates, click on that. That will tell you all you need to know, and you really need to monitor La Palma. Now, this is why one of our two models for why La Palma and a number of other major volcanoes like Etna, like uh, Kilauea, um, I think there's been a rumor about Mount St. Helens, um, all seem to be kind of uh, doing their thing at once. What are the odds? I mean, I posted a, uh, a piece of analysis last week, if you'll look back at last week's show, which said that the apparent increase in smaller earthquakes, not major earthquakes, but smaller earthquakes and volcanic events is a selection effect. It's an observer effect. There's a lot more people looking with social media. We get to know about this stuff, you know, more often now than we used to decades ago. So I'm not sure I totally believe that model because one of the things that I've been looking for going all the way back to a show that Art had with a, a geophysicist where he said very bluntly back in the 1990s that there were real increases in volcanic activity matching the increase in hurricane severity. And uh, there were other geophysical events that he was talking about, all kind of accelerating or increasing in intensity simultaneously. And I heard this, this was back in the beginnings of uh, our investigation of the hyperdimensional torsion field model and I said well that's interesting because that's what the model would predict so up until now this has been an exercise in theory again the odds of anything happening catastrophic to La Palma are very 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 low but they're not zero and if we've learned anything through this pandemic it's small numbers uh, over a large amount of time can be very problematic so Keep watching La Palma. If you want to see something really dramatic, however, that's in support of the torsion field model as the fueling energy source for La Palma, you want to take a look at my item number two. This is from an article that was posted a few days ago in the Washington Post. Uh, I would have put up the entire article. Unfortunately, the Post has a paywall. I hate paywalls. Come on. You know, when there's really critical life-saving information, you know, make it available. You know, it won't really hurt your bottom line. Come on. But they didn't, so I was able to excerpt the image. This is a uh, satellite image, a NASA satellite image, and it's a narrow spectral band uh, imager, uh, which is a more fancy name for camera, which takes images in multi-spectral bands, and you put them together in in some versions, you can get, you know, color, full color, red, green, blue. Look at the remarkable, and you can click on this, it gets bigger. Look at the remarkable circular wave pattern 
centered on the volcano at La Palma. I mean, that's, it looks like someone had dropped an enormous stone or bowling ball into the uh, uh, eastern uh, uh, side of the island, and it had liquefied it, and you get these extraordinary wave fronts. Well, there's a dynamic version of this. If you click on the Twitter link just below, and I'm doing that now in real time, that will take you to Twitter, which is loading, and you will see there a really remarkable time lapse, both from the ground and from orbit, of the volcanic emissions moving upwards in a vertical column and then spreading out in the form of these amazing concentric atmospheric rings of condensing water vapor. Now, the caption said this is caused by a Saharan air mass, which is moving horizontally, and it's causing a temperature inversion so that uh, the plume from the volcano is kind of running into an atmospheric ceiling where it then spreads out. Forget the, uh, the dynamics of why we're able to see it. Look again at the, at the enlargement when you click on that image of what you're seeing. You're seeing rings with nothing in between. The only way that happens is if the volcano, in emitting this vertical column of hot gas and ash, is pulsing. It's vibrating. The emissions are occurring in a rhythmic, very low frequency cycle. And I have never seen this, as far as I can remember, in any other volcano around the world at any time. And we've had satellites, you know, we've had Tyros up there for, for decades, uh, the, the original uh, weather observation satellites, which could have seen this kind of phenomenon. No, this appears to be unique to La Palma. And it's not so much why we're getting to see it, which is a kind of a free coincidence of the Saharan air, the inversion, etc. If the volcano was emitting energy constantly, you would not see rings. You wouldn't see pulsations. This looks like a dynamic visual effect caused by condensing water vapor as the kind of tracer, you know, the dye in the stream, of the pulsing invisible infrasonic energy which is somehow being inputted to the La Palma volcano. And so the energy is not continuous. It's coming in low frequency pulses. Now, the natural model says that this could just be an amplification of the background physics, <clears throat> which is kind of coalescing around this volcano to show us this phenomenon, a more, well, problematic explanation is that someone with an artificial torsion field energy technology is doing this artificially. In other words, they are pulsing energy into the volcano through invisible torsion field frequencies and because of the Saharan air, the inversion, water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere, we're able to see the pulsations 
spreading out under this inversion as a series concentric rings, just like dropping a pebble in a pond. And this, of course, is the worst case scenario, because if this isn't natural, if this is not just the general uh, increase in the background physics of the planet, in fact, of the entire solar system at this particular time in galactic history, then is someone doing this? Are they doing this to, shall we say, threaten the powers that be? Every nation bordering the Atlantic Basin, which would be radically, dramatically, catastrophically affected if half the island were to slide into the Atlantic. If this is not just a natural sequence of events, if someone is using some device to pulse energy into La Palma, this, image number two, and the Twitter video is exactly what you would see. So keep watching La Palma. Put the alerts on your phone. On the East Coast, if something really radical happens, you'll have about six to nine hours to get out of Dodge. Item number three. The reason we're kind of here tonight is we're, we're celebrating a very intriguing event. So if you click on item number three, uh, a couple days ago, the Russians launched the first glamorous actress. She's not an astronaut. She's not a cosmonaut. She's not a specialist. She is an actress who has starred in major Russian films for many, many years. She and a producer-director were lofted into space by a, um, a Soyuz spacecraft earlier in the week, rendezvoused after one and a half orbits. They're now inside the International Space Station. And for the next 11 days, they are going to be filming major portions of a Russian space film called The Challenge. And if you want the details, you click on item number three. What is curious, of course, is that this marks another Russian first. Remember, the Russians were the first to launch a spacecraft into orbit, Sputnik, which was the anniversary a few days ago, about five days ago. They were the first to launch living creatures, uh, the dog Laika. They were the first to launch uh, a cosmonaut, uh, a man, Yuri Gagarin, into low Earth orbit. They were the first to launch a woman cosmonaut, Valentina Tereshkova. And now they have launched the first film crew whose sole job for the next 11 days is to shoot this interesting blonde bombshell in the space station in her role as a premier heart surgeon who is ferried up to the space station to operate in zero gravity on a cosmonaut being played by one of the cosmonauts in the space station tonight who has somehow suffered a severe uh, heart condition that will not allow him to make it back in reentry to the Earth alive. So she has to be ferried up in an emergency mission to operate on this cosmonaut and his heart condition in zero gravity. 
and thereby hangs what I imagine the Russians are hoping is a very interesting and lucrative space tale. Now, what's curious about this is for the last several months, we've been hearing rumors that Tom Cruise is making some kind of a deal with Elon Musk to go up in the uh, Dragon uh, spacecraft, the, the Dragon crew spacecraft, and also rendezvous with the International Space Station and to shoot a portion of his uh, live-action uh, Mission Impossible series in space. What is really intriguing is obviously the Russians beat Tom Cruise and Musk to the punch. And inquiring minds, particularly mine, kind of want to know, how did this happen? Remember, Elon Musk is the guy who put his own Tesla Roadster into orbit in an incredible branding exercise for launching his first uh, heavy lift launch version of the Falcon 9. How could he get upstaged by the Russians? Uh, We will be discussing that tonight with our panelists, so uh, let us move on. Now, while all this is happening, uh, something else really bizarre happened. Um, President Vladimir Putin, who, of course, is the Russian president, uh, in conjunction with the Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Rozgazin, um, who are who is heavily involved in the Russian space program, has issued an edict. Over here, we call it an executive order. In Russia, they call them edicts. He has forbidden space reporters, both Russian and foreign, from covering, from reporting on details of the Russian space program. Simultaneously, now now I get this, simultaneously with the Russians achieving another first, shooting the first uh, feature-length space film in real zero gravity in the space station, in the Russian section of the station, the president of Russia has forbidden the press to cover the mission and any ancillary technology or uh, weapons-related or military related stories to the entire Russian space program. Um, Talk about conflicted. And obviously our panelists are going to be discussing that tonight. Oh, and if that weren't enough, we now have the following piece of really intriguing information. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilization. Yes, you're not dreaming, because Captain Kirk, James Tiberius Kirk, uh, alias William Shatner, is finally, after all these decades, going into space in a Jeff Bezos Blue Origins spacecraft. And in fulfillment of a very old uh, Star Trek joke stemming from the film Generations, he's leaving next Tuesday. Okay, can can life get any weirder than fiction? I don't think so. And of course, last week we talked about uh, how it would be really cool if um, 
uh, Musk made him an offer that he can't refuse and that uh, Bill went into space, really into space, not just for five minutes, for maybe hours and hours or days and days in a starship if he actually went around. I mean, there's nothing that can preclude him from kind of getting his feet wet on this uh, suborbital Alan Shepard type hop after he finds at the age of 90 that he's hale and hearty. And I know there's a space.com story out there that he's terrified. I, I really don't think so. I think this is a uh, bill with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek because uh, nothing's forcing him to go. If he didn't want to go, he doesn't have to go. Um, so he's going at a suborbital hop. Once he kind of realizes how much fun it's going to be, maybe he will want to go for longer. Maybe he will want to visit the space station. Maybe in 2023, when Musk is planning to take his first tourists in the Starship on their first odyssey around the moon, maybe Bill Shatner will be in command of his first real Starship. Stay tuned. Finally, um, item number six, and we're going to have some fun with this tonight. We've got all these civilians now suddenly going into space. We've got uh, uh, Musk successfully launched and returned the Inspiration4 crew uh, at the end of this month, literally on Halloween Eve, on the 30th of uh, October, the um, uh, third uh, Dragon crew is going to be lofted by a Dragon spacecraft called Endurance, named after the famed Shackleton expedition, to the space station to take over from the crew number two, which is currently a part of the uh, ISIS contingent. And uh, uh, with all this civilian traffic, one cannot wonder how long it's going to be until what people have been talking about, whispering about, and some dreaming about for many decades comes to pass when, in fact, there will be documented history-making love in space. And I imagine that we're going to get around to talking about this um, later in the evening as well. Well, without further ado, um, let me kind of stop there and uh, introduce my guest of the evening, uh, they are very familiar to all of you, starting in no particular order, because I, uh, uh, you know, just kind of picked them out of a hat here as uh, they come up on the screen. We, of course, have John Womack. Um, John began leaving his body without a spacecraft in 1965 at the age of six. A year later, after watching an episode of The New Adventures of Superman, Jonathan assumed a ghostly version of the Man of Steel for his astral excursions, a practice that apparently, according to John, continues to this day. He also is currently a producer and a head of a very interesting new multimedia effort on the, um, I think it's a paranormal network. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm wrong about that, he will, he will correct me. It's called The OBE Show. It's uh, on Amazon Prime and other places. And so uh, he'll be with us tonight talking about one of his favorite loves, which is spaceflight. Ron Gerbron is a member of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team and a generalist all the way around is with us. Uh, Timothy Saunders, who was our nautical 
um, architect from the uh, wilds of Turkey is able to join us tonight. And uh, he's been doing a separate analysis of the ruins, the Zurong ruins that we talked about uh, a week ago that the Chinese landed next to in Utopia Polynesia. And then, <clears throat> much to our surprise, they ran like hell from, in fact, uh, talking about. And, of course, we have Keith Morgan with us, um, who was a uh, major uh, component of Nightline for many, many decades and has created something way back when called the Morgan Curve, applied to Sidonia and the ineffable mathematics that uh, we've uh, discovered there. And last but not least, we will be joined later in the evening, I believe, by Andrew Curry, who is our resident film expert. He's uh, attending a Canadian Thanksgiving party tonight, which was kind of a command performance by his better half. And so he will be joining us a little later in the program. So without further ado, let me open the lines and welcome everybody back to the other side of midnight. Hey, Richard. Hi there. Hey, YouTube. Uh, you're a little muffled, Ron. Muffled? Muffled. Oh, like you're wearing a big muffler. Still muffled. No, better, better. Keep okay. talking. Okay. Well, better, much better, much better, much better. Okay. okay. Well, there's nothing. Okay. Timothy, are you with us? I am. Good evening, Kim. Oh, my God. You sound like you're in my studio here. I am. Amazing. Behind you. <laughs> oh, hi there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's start with the Russians in orbit. Um, who wants to react to something I find very historic because remember, it's not all the documentaries about space that captured the hearts and minds of the American people and then the world. It was a fictional television show about space called Star Trek that my old friend Gene Roddenberry created, which basically captivated the public's imagination, their ability to dream, et cetera, et cetera. And now their captain is finally going into space. So what the Russians are doing tonight in shooting this movie, my opinion is it's a big, big deal. Who wants to respond first? Well, can I jump in there, Richard? Sure, John. Um, I think I, I can't explain this in three minutes, but I want to. Who says you have to do this. it in three minutes? Um, we got a break coming up. Well, so. we can always pick it up on the other side. I mean, the name of the show is The Other Side. Come on. <laughs> well, I think this is all classic NASA ritualism that goes back to, I can trace it back to 1971. Okay. And, and Russell Targ and SRI and Werner von Braun. Now, how do you trace a Russian activity back to NASA? Well, um, I uh, actually produced a 90-minute uh, film with Russell, and over six, seven months, we, we talked every day at length, and I uh, got to know him pretty well. And, and he was telling me about um, – that's how SRI got started, was uh, NASA. That's who, that's who funded it. It was okayed. If it wasn't for Warner von Braun, there'd be no SRI. Russell was looking for funding, and he had a meeting with Werner – um, on the East Coast out here. I believe it was uh, New York. Maybe I'm missing yeah. something, but what does this have to do with the Russians filming, you know, their first movie in space? 
Am I dense tonight? No, this has to do with Tom Cruise and Scientology. Yes, there's like a flow chart. Okay, so you're setting us up for a big tease on the other side. We will fill in the yes. blanks. Okay, I can buy that. Um, all right, um, I can never get enough of this. So what we're going to do here on the other side of midnight is we're going to do this. This is all blow over, you know, and now they're kind of realizing that it isn't. But but because people would not take the jab, they're basically holding them to ransom, holding them hostage in their homes, basically saying that the, the only way to establish freedom again is to take the jab. And so people are sort of gradually complying. A lot of people are gradually complying. But so many people are dying from it. I mean, they're, they're basically genociding this country is what they're doing. And they're using it as an example for the rest of the world. And the Australian people, I mean, they're pretty kind of laid back. I mean, I, I call the place Apathralia because they're a pretty apathetic bunch. Um, I mean, I love them, but they just, you know, she'll be right, mate. You know, it's all good. Don't worry. You know, no worries, mate. This all, this whole attitude. And I'm starting to see now that actually, actually things are going a little pear-shaped. There's going to be a rude awakening for them, I think. Within the next 12 months, they're going to realize just how much they've been played. And there's going to be this uh, five-minute red pill moment where they just have complete meltdowns, I think, once they really see what's going on. Mm. A lot of people are sort of getting it, but, but a lot of people aren't. They're still thinking it's going to go away. They're still thinking the government is their friend. I mean, the whole plan of this, the plan is to run this pandemic until 2025. That's when the funding runs out. Uh, if you look at the World Bank, you can look at the funding for COVID. It starts in April 2020 and runs until March 2025, March 31st, 2025. So that's how long they intend to run it for. They tend to be in the in their new world by 2025. So the way they're going to do it, they'll, they'll crash the United States last. They'll, do it, they'll crash the United States probably in 2025. It'll be a gradual process because... See, we've been disarmed here so they can do certain things in, in certain ways and get us to comply with that. They're going to have to employ different countries in different ways. By the time they've destroyed most of the world around it, the United States will be last because it's a very robust, very strong sort of a nation. Everybody's armed. So they've got to break down the food chain and all that sort of stuff. So you will see what's happening in Australia in the United States around about 2025. That's what they plan to do. This is Max Egan, and I suggest that you tune into the other side of the news for information that you may not find at other sources, and it's always good to be up with what's really being said.
Saturday night, October 9th, to the other side of midnight. Uh, needless to say, I disagree with every single thing that guest on the other side of the news said, but I am an absolute adamant defender of the First Amendment, and I believe in his right to say it. The good news is, science is nothing if it's not prediction. I will make you a counterforce prediction that everything he said is dead ass wrong. Our subject this morning is the Russians filming the first movie, you know, kind of 2021 Space Odyssey for real, except they're calling it the challenge. And why are they calling it the challenge? Because the plot basically is about a beautiful Russian surgeon who is medevaced by an emergency Soyuz mission to the International Space Station to save the life of a Russian cosmonaut who was undergoing cardiac distress in the extreme. He cannot survive re-entry and landing back on Earth, so she has to fix him in orbit, in zero gravity, surgery with blood in zero gravity. Remember um, that great movie, one of the Star Trek series called, uh, um, oh, what was the darn, The Undiscovered Country. The plot turned on zero gravity and blood, interestingly enough. And, of course, Bill Shatner was a key part of that. Well, while this Russian mission, for real, is going on upstairs, shooting a first movie not as a kind of an ancillary, oh, it would be cute to do something in the space station. No, the film centers on the Russian space program, a beautiful blonde Russian surgeon saving the life of one of the Russian cosmonaut heroes in zero gravity, in space, a real rocket man. So the Russians have plunged foot first into a dizzying series of potential plot lines involving real space dramas shot in real space. And again, the question I have is, why is Tom Cruise and Elon Musk number two? I mean, Elon could have launched uh, Cruise to do this months ago, maybe a year ago. So why are they number two? Well, John Womack, I believe, may have an answer. So um, after this song ends, I just, I just love this song. <laughs> 
We will get back to our guests on the other side of midnight in 2021, October 9th. Okay, John, now that we've teased them mercilessly, <clears throat> you're on. Well, I don't know about answers, but it's at least a working theory, and it's just things that occurred to me as I'm reading these articles about the Russians in space and Tom Cruise and so forth. But it just reminded me of Russell talking about getting this program going, and he thought NASA was the answer to funding this, and he met with Werner, and he gave... Werner played with his uh, ESP teaching machine, with Russell Targ's ESP teaching machine, where you try to predict what the next number is going to be when you press a button. And Russell's pitch worked, and um, Werner said, yes, we're going to fund this. Now, I believe that they were very interested in using remote viewing for studying the solar system. And Ingo Swan was one of the remote viewers, and he was, you know, NASA came over one day and said, we're sending this satellite out to Jupiter, and, like, it'll be there in eight months. Can you go have a look and tell us what you see there? And, of course, Ingo said, well, I... This is back in the 1970s, right? Yes, this is in the early 70s. And I believe you're talking about the Pioneer 10 mission, which left Earth in 1972 in November. That's right. Yeah, SRI started in 1972. And, um, you know, they were up and running. They're doing experiments with remote viewing. And Ingo is a very powerful remote viewer. And they also had a gentleman named Pat Price, who Russell calls the most psychic man in the world at, at that time. Well, Ingo was too. They both were. But, um, so Ingo goes out and has a look at Jupiter and says, yes, I see these rings around it. They go, no, you're looking at Saturn. He says, no, there's ice rings <laughs> around Jupiter. I'm looking at them. He's like, I'm telling you, I've been doing this all my life, and there's ice rings there. Take it to the bank. So, of course, eight months later, when they get there and they take the pictures, they see, oh, my gosh, there's ice Rings. Well, let me let me stop you there. They're they're not ice. He was okay. he was half right. They okay. are <clears throat> particles of sulfur that are emitted by the Ionian volcanoes that are ejected beyond the um, uh, the uh, uh, gravitational field of Io, the inner volcanic moon, and they can't get away from Jupiter, so they coalesce into very narrow banded rings that were seen. Uh, by the Pioneer spacecraft very crudely and seen much better in far higher detail because the cameras were better on the uh, first Voyager flyby of, uh, of Jupiter back in the early 1980s. So, yeah, Ingo was right. There are rings around Jupiter. They're just not made of ice. Hmm, interesting. So NASA 
is very interested now, even more so in remote viewing. And now Pat Price was a Scientologist. And there's a lot of mystery around his death because the CIA decided they wanted to take over control from Russell and uh, his partner, Hal Putoff. They wanted to run the program and have, you know, they're, they're running the shots and all this, you know, they wanted to have the power. And um, so they did that. And Well, just like they first photographed surreptitiously the incredible glass structures on the moon on, under Project Corona and didn't tell anybody that's what they were doing. Mm. Makes you wonder if they knew they were there before. Of course they did. Of course yeah. they did. Anyway, mm. continue. Well, so NASA lost some of their control there or their, you know, their friendship and everything with SRI. Because now the CIA, see, it's this power struggle going on. So now Pat Price moves from California over to Virginia so that he can work with the CIA on the Stargate program. And the main thing was to spy on the Russians and the Chinese. But they were also looking at the planets. And they knew that Pat Price, who could read the codes, the launch codes off the president, you know, the the codes in the president's pocket, he can see those. And NASA was just very worried about him. And, um, when they found out that he was giving secrets to his Scientology boss or whatever you call, uh, you know, the head of the Scientology there. And NASA, there was a Scientologist in the upper echelons of NASA as well. So Pat was sharing this top secret information, I believe, about numerous planets, you know, Mars and the moon, and I'm sure they were Well, I know through my contacts, remember, the first independent Mars investigation team was based at SRI, brought in by Lambert Dolphin, who was a senior physicist there, and we conducted our first survey of Sidonia and other places, a very synoptic uh, research effort, and as part of that, just up the corridor, was a guy named Ed May, who was part of this remote viewing group. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ingo Swan and he had looked at Mars, and in the midst of our looking at NASA imagery, the Viking orbital imagery of Sidonia, and trying to figure out, you know, was it real, was it Memorex, were there mathematics, etc. cetera, uh, Swan reports seeing in his remote viewing uh, persona that there were active technologies still functioning at Sidonia, literally at the other end of the complex over by what we used to call the uh, Crater Pyramid. And if you don't think that through a cat among the pigeons. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so what does this have to do with Tom Cruise? Come on, come on. We only got three hours. Tom Cruise is part of Scientology. So they what? Science, they believe, but so well, what? they want control of they want the control of space, and they're also yeah. But like NASA's NASA, not doing ritualistic. this. The Tom Cruise movie that he's talking with Musk about launching has nothing to do with NASA. The no, only the only interface. You read with, the articles. It says Tom did a deal with Elon and NASA. Yeah, but the only deal with NASA is they have to give him permission to dock at the space station. But remember, but the Russians. Involved. The Russians are also a key players in the space station. In fact, there's a multinational 
European community. So it isn't just NASA. And again, why did not Cruz and Musk upstage the Russians? Why did we allow, again, like uh, Eisenhower allowed Sputnik to happen? And that's a very long story. Why did we allow the Russians again to get one more first in space? Hmm. That makes you wonder. Now, it could be that it just took longer for them to, they're writing the script and they're doing the storyboards and it's just a production thing. Or there could be more to it. Okay. Anybody else? Kim? Well, I think Uh, it's a a perfect enigma because... A perfect enigma. Okay. Well, I mean, with CGI, there's absolutely no need to go to space. You can much far more easily... Oh, yeah, yeah, but come on, come on, come on. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, then, the, the actuality is, 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 is what you want here. You want it really done in space. Come on. So once yeah. you establish that as your parameter, again, why did no, I, Musk I, allow themselves me. to be beaten to the punch? You ask me, and then you're dictating my answer. That's not my answer. My answer is it's much easier to do it in studio, in my opinion. Well, we know and that. then... It's not well, even okay. an issue. So why, why bother going to space and then putting a press ban on it? Why because of bragging rights. Most people go. go for reality as opposed to CGI any day of the week. You know, they, well, they will, they will gravitate towards something that's real in a world full of things that are not real. They'll go for something real. Well, the Russians are really shooting this movie in space. So when they open it in the theaters worldwide... You know, the bragging rights are first movie shot in space, not on a soundstage. I don't think it's the first movie. I think technically speaking, there has been a previous movie. Uh, well, there have been all kinds of documentaries, history. but this is the first. Yes. Uh, can you remember the name of the fictional film then? Not at the top of my head. I saw it a week ago, but I... I've oh, you did? Yes. Oh. I've been trying movie. to think of it for 15 minutes. Yeah, I think there, there was something. I can't remember what it was either. It was like a, a, a movie, documentary, docu-movie sort of thing. It was, uh, but to go back to the point you're asking, it, it is purely to create an enigma for bragging rights and for publicity. That's what it is. Right. So there's no need to... We all that. agree. Okay. I mean, don't you think Stanley you, Kubrick, if he'd been offered a chance to shoot 2001 in orbit, he would have jumped at the chance? I I'm not so sure. I mean, <laughs> really, in his case, I'm not so sure either. Hmm. Sorry, Tim. I'm just agreeing with you silently in the background here, not so silently. <laughs> well, go ahead, go ahead, Ron. Oh no, I just think uh, you're forgetting that uh, Tom Cruise has a gigantic ego. I really enjoy the Mission Impossible movies, but one of their features, which is every single one of them not just this one, is that he does his own stunts. Yep. I mean, it has shut the, it shut the procedures down for months on occasion when he's just about killed himself. I mean, he's actually hanging off an airplane while it's taking off, you know, and, and all this other kind of stuff. And so it was necessary if they were going to have something that was based. So we have to presume it's a plot point and not just a little addendum like in um, what was that? It was a diamonds are forever or skyfall. I don't know. One of the bond movies where the uh, couldn't have been skyfall. moonraker moonraker. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, you know, they didn't send anybody up into space for that, but that there wasn't really any private space. No, there was no way they could have done that then. 
No, but as far as as far as that, they've also been shut down for a year because of the pandemic. Even with all the pull that Tom Cruise and Scientology's money and everything else, they couldn't get clearances for most of that time. You know, they could do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so it dragged on. And I mean, how do you plan that? How do you say, okay, Elon, we're ready to go on because you know, March? Because all astronaut missions have a two-week quarantine period, you know, going back to the first Mercury flight so that your astronauts do not get colds or the measles, et cetera, et cetera. So quarantining the crew and the launch teams and all that would have been de rigueur, piece of cake, no problem. COVID-19 did not delay the Tom Cruise effort. Maybe you're right about scripting, because particularly if the script is central, like the Russian script is central to shooting in the station, you know, Cruise and Musk don't want to be, you know, uh, shall we say, eclipsed by something that looks like a stunt as opposed to something that's integral. So that could have been one of the hangups. You know, a good script does not write itself. Yeah, well, the, the, the monkey wrench in all of this was the um, Russians' activities because I, it, it, I don't think it was important to Tom Cruise from his side exactly when they went up. I, I, uh, I believe without having talked with Elon Musk about it that this was you know totally in Elon's camp. You know, okay, when you can handle this, we'll go and we'll do this part of the movie. You know, they'd want some warning. They'd want all the all the buildup and the preamble and the quarantine and everything else that you talked about. But they'd have everybody cleared and ready, and they could go when they needed to, when it was available. But it wasn't a race at that point. And then the Russians, without anybody knowing they were coming. Whoops! Did we lose Ron? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, 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 let me him. let me complete what he was saying because he's an error. We knew, we've known for months the Russians were planning to do the same thing. In fact, they announced right after uh, the cruise effort was rumored. So we've known for a long time that they were serious about this. And the idea that the, uh, the Russians have again upstaged the West, I just find very intriguing. Well, Here, I wonder if the message. I'm Thank sorry. you. Oh, <laughs> Richard, I wanted to add that Tom Cruise's movie is probably a much bigger scale than the Russians operating on the, the you know, the person movie. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in both productions, um, I, I've heard uh, rumors that they're going to shoot some scenes in the cupola, which is this wonderful windowed view of the world from 260 miles upstairs that faces the earth, the nadir position on the station. And if you light it properly, you've got this incredible, dramatic backdrop of the earth moving under you, sunrises, sunsets. So that would be interesting. The only thing that they could do Hello? to, to yeah. Hiron, the only thing they could do Sorry. that would upstage that would be, of course, an EVA. And I'm I, wonder- think I think they're doing in the movie. Well, I haven't been able to find a script, so I don't know. Um, but I would say if, if they do if they don't do not do this, whoever goes up next for the film crew, i.e. crews, uh, is definitely going to do this. So, you know, and shooting outside the space station is, well, it actually can be dangerous, you know, if, yeah. not, if yeah. well, because you don't want to drift off. 
you know, yeah. they they do wear this thing uh, American astronauts and Russians called a safer, which is an acronym, but basically it's a little uh, jet pack that allows you, if the tether separates, to literally maneuver yourself with nitrogen gas jets back to the space station. But that has to be practiced. And if you don't know how you're doing, you could put yourself into a roll, you know, or a spin and not really move toward the station. You could move away. In other words, that part really you cannot simulate easily on the ground. So that may be one of the things that's taken more time because it would be very embarrassing for everybody involved. <clears throat> if Tom Cruise, you know, becomes the first, you know, actor lost in space. Mm. <laughs> By the time he gets there, they might have another wing on the ISS. It's like a food court with Arby's. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. John is pulling our legs. Okay. Um, um, okay. Before we finish this, this multimedia thing, uh, John, I see you've got some interesting things connected in your section tonight. You want to take us through them? Yeah, there's not much to say. You you said you uh, invited me on from my producer perspective, so I shared some trailers of some of my work, and uh, a couple of them are shows that you know from from you, Apollo 11 50th anniversary, part one and two, and um, oh, the balanced rock anomalies. Yeah, it's a pretty good video. That was back in August 15th when Keith was showing his pictures from Utah. Oh, that's number five in your section. Number five, yes. And uh, I just had to stop. I had several projects going, but I just had to stop what I was doing. And they come on. This is ridiculous. This is... Well, for those that missed the show, tell us why. what is ridiculous. Don't assume anything of your audience. Well, there's an area called Balanced Rock, and uh, it's portrayed as some interesting erosion, but it's, it's not erosion. This is the, an area, the whole western U.S. is just full of this stuff, and it's all, this whole area is, is carved and sculpted, and I mean, I can't hardly even look at it. It just, it's, it's disgusting that People are walking around going, look at this interesting erosion. And you have all these beautiful sculptures of deities and animals uh, that represent gods and so forth. So, yeah, it's a good video if you have time. Okay. Well, don't give yourself short shrift. Go, go through these. You've got one oh. called Fly Through. Use the opportunity, John. You've got the world at your fingertips. Talk about yourself. Okay. <laughs> You're, you're sure. much too modest. All right. Well, number six is uh, a set design that is for um, Maria Wheatley Project. Maria's been on the show several times, and as many of your listeners know, she's a, a dowser, and she's very knowledgeable about um, earth energy. Well, her father's an archaeologist, and she is what I would think of as a kind of a hyperdimensional uh, archaeologist. She's into the energies of these sacred sites, particularly what happens during and after eclipses at places like Stonehenge. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And she's found some new information in her research, and 
She sent me a ton of materials, and I'm going to be putting these things uh, into the virtual realm and model some of these ancient structures that are no longer there that she believes were, were part of Stonehenge back in the day. So I don't want to say too much about it because uh, she's had, she has a book coming out about it, too. This, and so this show in the book, we Do want to Do you know out. the pub date? Yeah, we're looking at summer uh, 2022, next ah, summer. Oh, okay. Because, you, you might want to talk about Halloween since, you, since it was your idea and you set it up. Oh, yes. Uh, Marie is going to be on Halloween night, October which 31st. Is Thunder, which is Sunday, the 31st. Sunday, the 31st, and she'll be on with Georgia Lambert and uh, Natalie from Paraflix. Uh, Paraflix is what you were, the word you were looking for earlier, Richard. Is not, oh, uh, thank you. Was thank you. Not paranormal, but paraflix.com uh, is where you'll find all my shows. And it's also on uh, Amazon Fire Stick and Apple TV and Prime and all these things. But, uh, cool. So, yeah, Maria is going to be on Halloween night. And she's going to talk about some of the history of, of Halloween going back to Stonehenge and, and before. And so um, anyway, we're going to have a that, very, very hyperdimensional Halloween. Well, I, I almost I, at first I included myself in that pitch, Richard, because I have some a few terrifying stories from the other side, and. Um, I don't know. Maybe another time or who knows. Well, don't leave them on the cutting room floor. So we, <laughs> we will tease this show as we get closer. Uh, again, the 30th, the uh, Dragon 3 crew uh, goes up to the space station. Uh, four new astronauts launched by uh, uh, Elon Musk's Falcon 9 and Dragon spacecraft. This one named Endurance after the Shackleton expedition. And then uh, the following night, we have John and Georgia, and Maria, and Natalie to talk about Halloween and the hyperdimensional basis of the whole Halloween mythology, the thinning between worlds. Tonight we're going to be talking about, uh, well, beyond, you know, shooting major films in low Earth orbit, we're going to be talking where this can go. Because the idea of opening up the solar system, not just to professional astronauts but to professional filmmakers and professional tourists i mean i'm really looking forward to uh elon musk taking the first crew of tourists around the moon because of course on the moon there's all kinds of astonishing things which if civilians see it and skype about it or um you know, any of the other social media, um, once that cat is out of the box, it can never be put back in. And we're going to talk about some analysis of ruins, not on the moon tonight, but on Mars. Uh, Tim, Tim Saunders has done some interesting work on the Chinese ruins, the Zorong ruins we discussed last week. And uh, I can't wait to see what his analysis has discovered. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. On this Saturday night, October 9th, we shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, October 9th, 2021. Um, my guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, John Womack, uh, Tim Saunders, and uh, who am I forgetting? Andrew's going to be joining us later. We've got Keith Morgan kind of waiting there in the wings for a little later in the program. Um, gentlemen, um, I think I want to go to Tim now. Because, Tim, you've had about a week or so to kind of look at these amazing ruins that the Chinese landed next to. And you've had some time to do some independent analysis. And uh, I'm kind of curious what your really independent conclusion is regarding what I see as overwhelmingly obvious geometric artificial ancient ruins that the Chinese ran like hell from as soon as they knew they had touched down within about 1,300 feet. Instead of driving north, they drove south as fast as their little wheels could carry them. I wonder why. Richard, that's, that's a wonderful opening. Before we cast off too far away from the, uh, the space tourism subject, I thought it would be quite interesting just to drop a couple more. Oh, by all I, means. I, I mean, con- conversations are unscripted by definition so if you have thoughts the go ahead you know the you know the japanese billionaire uh yusaku uh maizawa yeah he's the, the one that's funding him. the first uh star dear starship moon. mission around the moon yes dear moon project yes indeed well it seems that he's also cannot wait for musk the musk calendar to return around uh so he's also booked on to go to the space station and also aboard a Soyuz. So very soon after this movie cast, this movie is going to be made, uh, he'll be going up 61 days later and counting. So that, that's an interesting move that he will be also going to the space station. Um, so, you know, it, it could just be something along the lines that the, all this business that uh, Musk getting permission to launch is far more delayed than is perhaps 
being made public at the moment. Yeah, and, but he only has he only has problems with launching the Starship from Boca Chica. He has no problems in launching Dragon spacecraft from Pad 39A at Cape Canaveral. He's done it, you know, the Inspiration 4 mission, which was all civilians launched on a, a Dragon, uh, uh, you know, crew spacecraft. So, you know, crews could have gone up. They could have rendezvoused with the space station without the Boca Chica FAA problem being any part of the calculation. I just am really baffled because, you know, when you talk about branding, the guy in branding in space is Elon Musk. Come on, there's nobody that comes close to him. Why did he miss this opportunity? Was he forced to miss it? Was it inadvertent? Were they really, as John said, maybe surprised? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I just find all, oh. remember, remember in politics, as FDR said, there's no such thing as coincidence. And this is politics, huge extraterrestrial politics. So why didn't Musk take the opportunity? Well, you jump back to the Falcon as, as the means of getting up into space. But mm-hmm. the whole point is that, uh, you know, you start to his paid an awful lot of money to go on the Dear Moon project, which is definitely using Starship, not using right, Falcon right. technology. Right, right. Yes, yes. So that's why to jump back on the point I was making, that that means that that is not a dead end, but maybe it's been put back further. So in the meantime, he's now jumping on to Soyuz to go to the space station to fulfill his dream. He wants to get into space quickly. So I wanted just to add that one. Well, given that he's Um, a billionaire, it's not his only shot. You know, he can go again and again and again. They've got money to burn. So it's uh, what I would think more likely, Tim, is that this is kind of a getting your feet wet, that you want to basically not throw up in zero gravity and make, make a fool of yourself on your own mission. So you want to have zero gravity experience for several days because it's going to take them at least a week to do the around the moon trip. Um, you know, three days out, three days back, that kind of thing, like Apollo for return trajectory. So it, given that amount of money, um, I don't see this as his one shot. I see it as very prudent planning ahead, um, maybe filling an interim where he can't go into orbit in a starship because Musk is being delayed uh, through the politics of Boca Chica. So, I mean, we, for all one big <clears throat> happy terrestrial family, it's not a problem in, in going with the Russians first because the real news will be when he goes around the moon and sees all that amazing stuff. No, I, I agree. I don't think it is his one shot. I'm, I'm just really wondering if this is, as I say, a reflection of how much the, the starship is actually delayed. So that was my point. But... Uh, the other point is, why would the Russians want to do a press uh, blanket on everything to do with their elements of the, the space oh, station? Oh, now that's much more important, yes. Well, don't forget, we have the, uh, the Tiangong uh, Chinese space station that's going up pretty, pretty fast. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just a security issue that from now on, there's no more peeking into the technology that they have already in the, the current space station. I mean, it's, it's just... Yeah, but the Chinese have borrowed all their technology from the Russians. That's what I'm saying. So maybe they've said enough. (laughs) um, One thing is having a machine built. Another thing is actually having one in orbit that works and functions and uh, can recycle air and waste and water and so on. So who knows? It's just an idea that may support why Russians are doing a, a, a press blanket on it. 
it just seems, again, too coincidental not to be meaningful if we can lift the hood and kind of see what's going on geopolitically because it's it's really hampering the Russians covering their own historical success by getting a film crew and a beautiful actress in orbit in the space station to film a fictional movie that's really the the, the plot points about space and the station are critical to the script, you know, through and through. So it isn't just an add-on, it's intrinsic. Uh, because I'm really intrigued with how are they going to simulate an operation in zero gravity but have real blood floating in droplets in zero G, real zero G. I mean, to me, the, the real movie was going to be the making of the challenge. Mm. Well, looking at it from the other point of view, having a complicated space station, the last thing you want to have is blood or any even red water or ketchup floating around in, in zero G in any case. So I don't think they're going to be allowed to do a lot of that in any case because, you know, you get a few drops of that into the switchboard or it's not going to function as well as it did before. So I, I think <laughs> it's, it, it, the whole idea is purely to create an enigma for publicity. That, that's it. And, then, and if the enigma comes down to selling seats in cinemas, then I don't really think it comes down to money personally. I think it comes down to, you know, as you say, it's another first into space. That, that's the whole point. Well, to me, it's not just another first, because remember, most people <clears throat> get their view of the world through television, Facebook, films. You know, we're indoctrinated 24-7 with media. The fact now that the Russians um, have basically taken the high ground in the ultimate space platform to get, you know, you know what they used to call that, uh, seats in seats and seats. Um, I just find very interesting. And there's a variable history of Soviet science fiction about what's going on right now. And a little later on, we're going to have Ron kind of, you know, regale us with some stories about that. But I want to talk to you about the ruins, the Chinese ruins. What do you think of what they landed next to and then would not explore? Okay, well, let's deal with that one because I have spent some time, I have studied the images, I've studied the image which you and Ron kindly uh, sent to me and also the, I wanted to see the original because I wanted to see exactly how much um, processing or, or ha- had actually occurred between the original image and the you know, the one that we were looking at, the one that you were looking at on the show. Of course. And I did my normal thing, I brought it into my computer system, I adjusted the scale. I, I took several images um, that were going you know, back and forth between the email communications. One of them had a, a scale of a uh, hundred feet on it. So I set everything up at the same resolution and the same scale. So I can sort of click around and look at different craters, lining things up. And then I very carefully traced an outline around you know, what some people are calling the feather, the feathers. <laughs> I love it. P.S. <clears throat> feather uh, study is, is item number one. Uh, tell people what we're looking at. We need to go uh, under tonight's guest banner on the guest page. Click on Timothy. That will take you to his section of radio with pictures. Item number one is the raw NASA MRO image. That stands for Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter on the left. 
and the image on the right is Ron's first cut correction. Because what the what the uh, Ron, why don't you jump in here and tell us what the what the what NASA's done, which is so bizarre. Uh, okay, much as I can. Yeah, they uh, and, then, and then we'll hand it back that to that one. Oh, sorry. I said then we'll, we'll hand yes, it back to you... Tim. Go ahead. Oh. The background the of the first five. image in Tim's section. Yeah, you, they tinted it red, and it's just like they poured a bottle of taco sauce over it because it, uh, you can always recognize those because if you do a simple like fade correction, which whatever uh, processing software you have, uh, that's a very simple thing that looks for, you know, an overwhelming layer effect. You know, so if there's a if there's a uniform patina of some color mixed in the image, it'll just pull that out, part of the, you know, the um, fade reduction thing, as if it was like aged film or something, right? So in the case of this, yeah, it pulled most of it away. And then normal color uh, selection, uh, color correction would work. Uh, I'm unclear why they didn't want people to see what was there. You're kidding. That's just one of, well, it's a whole strip that's like, what, 30 miles long? Yeah. And a mile, you know, and a mile or so wide. Uh, And you're puzzled why they would try to muck it up while appearing not to muck it up? It's called plausible Uh, deniability in Washington. Yeah, they must have recognized is all I can say. They must have recognized that that particular crater had something that was unusual <laughs> in it and exceptional and would be noticed by people. So they said, oh, we'll just cover everything up. And that might even be connected to your um, uh, perception or assessment that the uh, Chinese said, uh-oh, we, should, we better not go any closer to that. And they, they took off in the other direction. Uh, I find it odd that they didn't know that it was there already. So there could, it could even be a deeper layer of politics. How like do you they know said, they okay, didn't know? Land right- well, but, 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 wait, they, they, well, they, they intended to have a controlled landing. They got really close within 1,300 feet. They could drive there right. in a, a few days. And remember, they bragged with their poster. I'm kind of reiterating previous shows. They bragged they were going to show us ruins. In fact, you didn't send yeah. me that curiosity image that, that that ruin is stolen from. You said you were going to send it, and it obviously fell between the cracks. So... At some point, you might do that uh, this week. Uh, so let's let's go back to Tim. So we provided you, Tim, with the blood-drenched raw image on the left, Ron's corrected image, quote, on the right, and you took it from there. Indeed. Indeed, I did. So the first thing at scale is important to me. And if you do wish to click on that first image, you can enlarge it. And you can oh, see wow. on the bottom right. Yeah, really nice. It, it, it's not really a lot of enhancement done at all. I've, I've not played in Photoshop at all. It's more of a sort of uh, a study based on scale and geometry and so on. Um, but you can see that the circular, the, the radiating circles on the bottom right, they are all set at 100 feet intervals. So you can get an idea, the epicenter being where the, the Chinese lander was, and you can see that, well, maybe you cannot see, but I can see on uh, my CAD system, just one second, I'm going to zoom in. They did get to within two and a half thousand feet of 
the what well, well what could be a feather or two feathers next to each other. Mm-hmm. So they they were pretty close, as you say. Yeah, half a um, mile. If you if you look at the rest of the image, you can see that I've enhanced not enhanced, I've just indicated some other items in there which are sort of uh, like a light blue surround. So you can see top left there's like three. I think they almost look like fish, a shoulder fish, <laughs> three, three uh, items at the top. And I did not highlight all of them, it's just too many of them. But what's very interesting is that each one of these elements that I've, I've highlighted, uh, as I say, I've not highlighted all of them, but they all seem to be orientated in the same direction. So they're, they're all pointing you know, northwest. Southeast. Yeah, now NASA claims uh, these are sand dunes and they're pointing in this direction because the light stuff being blown by the Martian winds and the aligned winds cause the dunes all to align at 90 degrees to the prevailing wind direction. So the wind is coming from the southwest, the lower left-hand portion of the image, blowing to the upper right corner of the image, and they claim these are all sand dunes. And I say, <clears throat> balderdash. Well, in, indeed, yes. So the, the, the second image, if we come out of that one, two or four, okay. is essentially the, the bronze enhanced image, and it's just the same setup, but it's just uh, at a larger scale, so we can see more clearly, perhaps, if you click in. And then the third image, you can also see, again, is an enlargement of the previous. So let's jump to number four, and then we're going to see really the closest view of is, is being termed Zurong ruins. And I have looked at this in a lot of detail. I have, I mean, you, you cannot see in this resolution, unfortunately, for some reason, the resolution has fallen away in, in this, this website image. But in, in the image, the original one I have, you can look really much more clearly at the, you know, every, every mouse click I made in order to record the contour or the perimeter of these these objects, and what I'm doing by that is I'm trying to understand: is that marker? Is it is it a la- 3D landmass? Is it is it a shadow? Is is it um, a highlight? Or you know, is there something geometric there? Um, and I have to say that I found two potential geometric shapes, and. You may be surprised at this, but I, what I'm seeing is if you zoom in on the fourth image, and it is a second click, so you zoom the image, and then you look at the top, what should we call it, feather, on the right-hand side, under the letter Z-H-U-R. It really hasn't shown up very well. It was much better on my original for some reason, mm-hmm. but there is like a blue square, let's say, under the letter H, under the letter H within the blue the light blue cyan perimeter of the feather. Can you see that little square? Mm, yes, dimly. Barely. It's, it's, okay. it's very it's small. It is. So that to me looked very perfectly formed as a square, but it equally could be a rock formation with light and shadow. If you turn on the, the screen, if you pan across to the left, again on the I say again, it's actually on the tail of the lower feather or, or a fishbone, and they also quite look a little bit like fish. On the left-hand side of the lower 
feather or fish. You can see this once again, it doesn't show up very easily, unfortunately, in my original it was much clearer, but there's a, a T, like two parallel lines which are horizontal and two parallel lines hmm. in dark blue which are vertical. Now, that, those two items are, in my opinion, the only thing on there which look geometric. The rest of it, in my opinion, I would say look very, very strange, but they do not look, but I think they look natural. So I, maybe that's not the answer you're expecting, but that's, that's my take on it. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I totally disagree, but interesting. See, to me, when I say geometric, I'm not talking about right angles. I'm talking about a complex uh, set of structures that cannot be produced by wind or even geology because if the wind blows one direction, it wipes out all the other geometry. If the wind shifts mm-hmm. direction, it wipes out the uh, previous geometry and establishes a new sand geometry. You can't get all this right angle stuff and, and complexity uh, with natural forces on this very small scale because it's like what would create all the substructure. And so geometry to me is not rectilinear geometry. It's, it's organic, you know, kind of like Frank Lloyd Wright architecture or maybe even Christos, the guy that wraps islands in pink plastic. Um, mm. it, 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 it's a much looser definition for things that both atmospheric erosion and geology on this scale there's no way I could see all that complexity, uh, three-dimensional, because you can see shadows, uh, being created by any natural set of forces. Well, I'm totally on the other side of the coin. I think it is a very, I think it is a very strange looking, but I think it's a natural phenomenon. Then you have to come up with a model for how to create it. Well, equally, what's your model to make it? People you know? did it. It's built. You know, we talk okay. about 3D printing. What's the printing? purpose, Richard? What's, What's the, the purpose? Who knows? What, why, why would you build it? Who, well, to me, if I, if I go back, let, let's go back to your, uh, uh, let me get out of this. Let me go back to. Uh, my, my question would be, why, why would anybody want to create a organic fish bone, bird wing, feather looking structure, which is about 450 feet long, which doesn't seem to have any particular purpose? Uh, that, that's my question. Or is it perhaps a, a calcified different ore, something which is uh, frozen in the ground? Is, is, it, is it something which is eroded in a different way to the soil, or the rest of the soil around it? Well, the you thing know, I found is interesting. Was that Ron? Yeah, I said I can answer that. Go ahead. Okay. So why would somebody want to build something that looks like a uh, gigantic pair of feathers or? The wings of an angel, a mile high, uh, would have wings that look like that. Uh, because they can, or could, in this case. Mm-hmm. That's why. I mean, you don't recognize the Sydney Opera House as clearly not a result of uh, geologic or erosive activity uh, by its square angles and edges, because it doesn't have any. You know, but you look at it and you know. And I mean, it's the same thing. You have to allow yourself to know, you know, because you always have the, and I don't just mean you personally, I mean, anybody always has the choice of changing their mind. You know, you say, well, you know what? Actually, there is a process that can do this. Well, there's no process that can do that. 
And that particular area of Mars has a whole lot of stuff that looks like that. Most of it is either too degraded or too buried for us to see much about it. This one is unusual, this site, because so much is exposed, more that matches it, because those dunes that don't look like dunes uh, are there for a reason. And in other parts of Mars, uh, the, even the frosted dunes don't look like those. So I don't know, you know, they're, they're, so they're, they're not even hedging their bets. They're pushing it to try and say that that's what they look like. I mean, you have to allow yourself to believe somebody would make something that looks like that. I can believe it. If you turn it upside down, it really looks like a bunch of skyscrapers. You know, we don't know which side is right side up or whether it fell over or whether this sort of sprawl was part of the design. The first thing I thought when I saw the image before I started to try and clear it up a little bit was uh, it looked like a gigantic boat. And I said, well, okay, it's not a gigantic boat. I mean, you know, it's got this curvy shape. And I just, Wait a minute. Um, One boat or two? Well, two, but the, one, the lower one, you know, in the orientation that's common to all, the, all of these displays, uh, is the more boat-like. You know, it, it looks like it looks like a classic Viking ship or something. You could even imagine oars or something like them. It also looks like the sky boats in the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, which again looks like the sky part. boats in the movie um, uh, John Carter that Disney made, the two hundred fifty million dollar yeah. quote flop, which took incredible pains to be faithful, uh, certainly visually, to uh, the Burroughs books and their illustrations. Right, very much so. But, you know, because he even remarked in um, the member that it's not just one book. There's 14 of them, I think, uh, in the main series, and uh, on how they part of their motive of their motive uh, processes where they sort of rode them through the air. You know, because remember they were weightless because of was it the ninth ray, uh, the uh, their in a particular form of energy that gave things that the ability to float in the air like that. And so, you know, they were much like boats, and, uh, which is a kind of a very romantic concept, but cool. And uh, I so think I would looked, recognize, looked, I think I would recognize a boat if I saw some remains of one. I've been doing what I do for like over 30 years. To me, it doesn't look oh, like a boat oh. from my point of view. I, I appreciate you may see a boat, and I respect that, but I don't see a boat. It doesn't jump out of no, the boat. No, but you're the, absolutely right. You're, you outrank me on that in every way. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not looking I to outrank you. I'm just saying, if you, if you see a boat, you see a boat, Ron. I respect that. I, I don't personally see a boat, but it, it's. No, it's but I, I do have on my computer, which you cannot see because I did not upload the images, but I have, there was a very nice website. Uh, somebody's created all the um, Basumian uh, skyboats in 3D. And uh, I cool. forget the guy's name, actually, but he's he really gone through a lot of details and some excellent, excellent 3D modeling and renderings. And I downloaded one or two and superimposed them next to my CAD drawing. And, and therefore, I can actually align them, rotate them, imagine, is that really going to be something, any, anything like that at all? And when you do put the two together, you know, while these skyboats have these sort of strange feather-like wings that come out of them, I, I don't really see very much more similarity than that. Okay. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me throw an absolutely off-the-wall speculation here, 
and we'll do it after the break because we're up against another break. <laughs> it's amazing how time does fly on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, Tim Saunders, uh, John Womack, and we're going to be joined at some point, we hope, by uh, Andrew uh, uh, Curry. And we've got Keith Morgan with us. You're on the other side of midnight from the Land of Enchantment on the evening of October 9th, 2021. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com On this Saturday night, to the other side of midnight, one and all, all around the world. You know, I've been quoting some polls that have been done on uh, TalkStream Live for the last year or so. Do you know that we are only number four right under George Norrie all over the world? We are the fourth highest rated nighttime audience all over the world dealing with the things that go bump in the night. And you probably recognize that soundtrack in the background. We're talking right now about uh, a set of features that uh, the Chinese, there's a wrong mission several months ago, landed right next to within a couple of thousand feet. And instead of driving toward them, they drove as fast as they could away. Uh, a number of us have kind of taken a stab at analyzing what these things are. Um, Tim was very busy with some other projects uh, last week, so... His analysis has been uh, somewhat delayed, and very intriguingly, he has reached very different conclusions than Ron has and I have, and uh, I'm not quite sure what Andrew's analysis is. He was going to do a couple of sketches, so hopefully we'll get those posted uh, by the time he comes on tonight. So I'll tell you what, let me, let me go back to the beginning of, of this conversation, because what I see when I look at this uh, crater 
uh, and it's not really a crater. It's a depression in the um, Martian surface. Uh, we have a tendency, uh, NASA certainly has a tendency to think of everything which is a hole as an impact crater. Uh, in this case, I'm wondering if this was literally not an ancient excavation because there is a beautifully square foundation at the bottom of this hole, which is like uh, uh, like 2,000 feet across, a little, little less than half a mile. And there is other geometry around the sides of this depression. They look much more rectilinear and more, quote, geometric in the classic sense of rectilinear geometry. What I'm seeing at the bottom of this excavation are these two organic, loosely geometric forms that are very convoluted, very complex. Uh, there's all kinds of shadowing. There's overlays. There's right angles. There's crossbars. There's the so-called feathers, which are external um, you know, forms sticking out at kind of right angles to the central spine of this set of two elongated features. The object to the north has much finer uh, extending structures than the feature to the south. <clears throat> but they look to me, Tim, as if they had been excavated from an ancient tomb, that they were somehow part of something very old, very buried, very protected, and at one of the past epochs in this recurring ebb and flow of successive Martian civilizations, which is our model, one of the much later civilizations, like we do here on Earth, they excavated their great, 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 great ancestors and dug out this, these two amazing shapes obviously given a technology we do not possess for uh, efficient excavation of overburden. And so they appear much newer, but in fact, they could be much, much older than the stuff that's around them. And the only way we're ever going to know is if you actually go there and, and do ground truth, do measurements, do, do uh, you know, isotopic analyses, uh, erosion estimates, which, of course, the Chinese with their rover were wonderfully equipped to do, including a ground-penetrating radar, and instead they fled in the opposite direction. If, if this was not um, a deliberate choice, a political choice, given how close they were to a major set of these enigmatic forms in Utopia Planitia, why would they have gone in the opposite direction? Why would they not, as a logical mission choice, artificiality notwithstanding, wouldn't you want to go close to something that obviously on the imagery that you took and that uh, the, the NASA people took shows great complexity of individual... Wouldn't you want to know how that originated, how it conformed to a, quote, natural sand dune model, which even on this scale... It's obvious it does not. In other words, they, they landed next to a mystery, and instead of going to answer the mystery, they went in the opposite direction, which I think was a major political decision. Richard, you know, you already mentioned I was very busy last weekend when you did this, this original analysis. I was too busy 
moving dots and lines around my screen at <laughs> that time. But um, what, which direction did the Chinese actually go? Well, the orientation, uh, the, orientation, the orientation of all these images is north is up, just like on Earth, yeah. okay? So if you go to your number two, all right, yeah. uh, which has the big enough scale, you see some of these, quote, dunes that you've outlined in blue. Mm-hmm. You see the crater, yes. the depression in question in the upper right-hand corner. You see the lander, the Zerong uh, lander and rover yes. in the middle of your concentric circles. You see the two blast um, features on the surface where the landing rockets on the Chinese lander blew away the dust. And mm-hmm. instead of going north to where they're 1,300 feet by my measurements, again, based on the Chinese scale, from the lower bottom edge of the white stuff at the, on, the, on the rim of this depression, they went in the opposite direction. In fact, you can see just below the central feature of your rings between mm-hmm. the first and second ring you see that little blue dot next yes, to the – that's the rover. That's Zerong mm-hmm. itself. They headed south. and We've got now data from NASA, uh, later MRO imagery. They drove as fast as they could, as fast as the little wheels could carry them, directly south, not looking at any of these interesting above-ground features. None of them. They're mm-hmm. avoiding all of them. Why? But the, well, that's a good question, but if, if – if I was, if I had the data I have is what I have in front of me on my computer system right now, then it's, it's only a 450 feet hop to the nearest dune, which in my opinion looks like similar mm-hmm. to what you've seen in, inside mm-hmm. the crater. Uh, only perhaps it looks better preserved or it's less eroded, one of the two. But I can see that that sort of spinal, curved spinal crest along the top sort of running east-west, roughly. Uh, well, not east-west, they're, they're sort of uh, northwest, southeast. They exactly, yeah. Running yeah. Similar. Yep. But they, that's one thing they all do is to have in common. It, it, it does look like they have this sort of spinal column that runs, as I say, in the same direction, more or less. And they're, they're slightly curved. They're slightly organic, sort of, you know, I don't think it could be like a, a steel cable under a tent, if you know what I mean. That's sort of like idea of uh, it's supporting a hanging roof system. But those, that's, let me just say, spinal feature seems to be there in all of the dunes. And that the nearest one was 450 feet away. And you would think you'd at least go and take a look at that and check it out. If Wouldn't you? Were you? Even slightly awake. Mm. Yeah. Ron, why don't you talk about your model, which I really kind of concur with. Okay, uh, funny. I'm just wishing I could. The uh, yeah, the, the thing is that as far whoops, my microphone's there. That's much better. Uh, yeah. The, okay, yeah. Sorry, uh, it slipped. I didn't see it. The uh, yeah, the thing is, as far as I can tell from the uh, trying to figure out what the Martians were up to in their basic aesthetic sense and so forth, uh, everything is very organic. And it's organic first and geometric second because uh, nature on whatever planet seems to do a very good job of, you know, making the right choices to have something that's functional. And it's just there. uh, It's the reason that and we see this in some of the ancient, ancient cultures here on Earth 
they would go out of their way to not actually modify the surface they were working on. They would just sort of embellish it, you know, without changing the basic shape. In other words, their first instinct was ne- was not necessarily to, oh, let's make this a nice square block, and then we can carve something in it. They would carve what was there, you know, and, and embrace that shaping. Uh, the The thing is that that's the only part of Mars where I've noticed, and I certainly haven't seen all of it, but, you know, looking at the MRO stuff from orbit, uh, there's no place else that has a whole bunch of that stuff that looks like fingernails from far away or feathers when you get closer and calls them dunes. There's no place else on Mars that looks like that. I mean, the dunes look like dunes or they don't, but they don't look that They way. do not look Everywhere like else. these features, which is so weird. The no. other problem I have, let me interrupt, Ron. The other problem is yeah, you have incredible segregation. You've got the dark stuff, red, brown, whatever color. Then you've got the light stuff. And the light stuff is supposed to be sand dunes blowing around in the wind. I should cue the uh, blowing in the wind music right now. How do they remain segregated over in the NASA model billions and billions of years? What keeps them from melding together into a melange of, you know, light brown stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think we have a mixture of two things. Yeah, we have glass and we have fragments of glass and we have the dust. And the dust, the infamous dust, which actually can cloud the atmosphere to a to a ruddy, smoggy color, like NASA would like uh, people to think it always has. Uh, the uh, but you can see it in the dust storms. That stuff just blows. Nothing would hold that down. And of course, there's no moisture there to capture it. To speak of. So the uh, but there's there's also heavier gravel and so forth. You know, it's very informative to look at some of the super close-up pictures they've taken with everything from the ChemCam to the uh, Molly and whatever they call the equivalent of the Molly uh, Watson, right? Are we talking Perseverance now? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just saying in all the missions, whatever they've got for uh, microscopic or nearly so viewing, look at the gravel. Look at it. And look at how sterile it is. You know, it is what it is. Some, Some of it looks very abraded, some still very sharp and grainy, but it doesn't look like normal earth sand, even though each individual particle, you know, more or less does. Uh, But then there's that and the dust that blows around. So yeah, there'd be no reason why they would stay separated like that unless there was something else. Yeah, let me, let me, let me do a bit of housekeeping. Kintia, can you see what Tim put in the Skype window? Can we port that over and put it as one of his items lower down because it's a very important illustrative point. It is an enlargement of a terrestrial sand dune, probably, well, sand dunes on Earth are very similar. And it's very different than the incredibly complex three-dimensional right-angle details of these objects, these structures, these features on Mars in this Utopia Planitia they're much too complex to be sand dunes. Because remember, when the wind changes, all the previous neat geometry gets wiped out, gets erased. And the new wind establishes a new pattern. You can't have old patterns fossilized over you know, a long period of time and all sticking out at various angles like we see with these things that look like huge, you know, 
wings, feathered wings, buried under an overburden. What I'm guessing, it's purely a guess, is whatever material these dunes are made of, if they are dunes, Thank is you. something different than the rest of the surrounding Excellent. Okay, next okay. question then. So, and, Why and, don't and, they mix? What keeps them separate? They're, they're a different material and perhaps even crystalline, or perhaps they have some other density or other um, composition. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. By, by definition, dunes, sand dunes, you know, or dunes of any kind, because you, you can have dunes in snow, you know, they're called drift, right? Mm-hmm. They're 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 made of millions of small particulates. The wind blows and sculpts into various shapes, right? Yes. But they're 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 fluids. They're particle fluids with very large particles compared to atmospheres and molecules and all that. Over time, they don't remain segregated. They okay, blow well, well, together. They mix. I agree with. I agree if they're the same as the surrounding material. But what I'm suggesting, let's just take a really simple analogy. Let's say we go on the beach this afternoon and I take a sack of, you know, cement, uh, powder cement, and I mix that into certain areas of the beach, but I do not spread it evenly all over the beach. Right. And then let's say it rains tomorrow uh, and the little baby sand dunes, some of them have a higher concentration of the cement powder than others. Right. Some of those will react differently to the, the rest of the beach. And they would probably be preserved if it was, really was a cement packet, a powder cement packet. Then it probably would last for maybe, what, six months, a year before it gets washed away. I don't know. I'm just making this up purely top of my head. But what I'm saying is there's something in there which is a different material. And maybe it has a, a reaction to... Uh, a moisture content or maybe it's crystalline or maybe it's something that's had more heat or maybe it's had more cooling than the rest of the area. I I don't know. I'm absolutely guessing. But that's the concept I'm trying to suggest here. See, to my geological understanding, and Ron, I'll let you get in a second here, um, the, the way you create dunes has nothing to do with what the stuff is made of. Chemical composition, it's mineralogical composition is irrelevant. It's all about particle sizes and sorting by particle sizes. The smallest stuff, being the lightest, will blow around first in whatever atmosphere you've got. The larger particles, the larger clumps, the larger you know, sand grains, we'll call them grains, whatever they are, they will be the last to blow and only under very high wind conditions. Now you add the idea that the winds on Mars are incredibly light because the atmosphere is supposed to be one one hundredth the atmosphere of the earth at the surface equivalent to earth at a hundred thousand feet the incredible complexity of these features in the bottom of that depression that nasa is calling a crater where where i'm saying that it's not it's an excavated huge archaeological excavation and the two incredible detailed objects at the bottom were carefully you know, covered up and preserved from erosion by atmosphere, by water, whatever, for a long period of time, that they were uncovered by an expedition, long-term effort to try to figure out what they were, and that they're, in fact, just the tops 
of something that could go much deeper, Ron, come contribute here, and that we're seeing okay. them in pristine form where the ones we're seeing on the surface, in fact, have been eroded. And the reason that they're not blowing in the wind and mixing with the brown stuff, they're solid stuff, their architecture, their masonry, their high-tech composite. In other words, they're not dune material. They're not grains. They're made of solid stuff. Yeah, it's uh, all the pictures that I was talking about, the boring stuff of the cl- of the super close-ups through the chem cams, et cetera. Uh, one thing that now we're going back to perseverance looking or, or, or curiosity. Any, any one of them, any one of them. So, and I, and they, they certainly have a, uh, an equivalent uh, microscopic capable camera on Zhirong uh, as well. Uh, Chinese, do we, I, they haven't, shared any pictures but i'm sure they have one anyway no evidence of cementing you know this relates to what tim was saying i i noticed that and it just clicked uh listening to this that it's yeah everything's loose it's either loose or it's solid everything you see in those and what you would normally see you know take a piece of uh, uh cement paving and smash it up and then look at it under uh, you know an equivalent sort of uh, macro lens, and you know you're going to see the grains embedded in a matrix, et cetera, et cetera, and that's something that's missing. Everything's loose, so to speak, um, no matter where it is. So, and it's because the place is so incredibly dry, for one thing. But the at least one of the Viking landers is at a similar latitude to what we're talking about with Zurong, isn't it, Richard? Yes. Yeah, and there are pictures, since they, were, since they couldn't go anywhere, they're just sitting there looking out their little window, so to speak, uh, and uh, they took pictures of the same terrain a year around. And there, uh, in the case of at least one of them, there's uh, frost in the wintertime. You know, they, got, they captured that. And that's the moisture. That's as much as you get. And what happens when it warms up a little bit? It's gone. Just sublimes. It's not enough to sink into the ground or anything. It didn't come from there. It was just what was in the air. And it's just gone. So there's, there isn't even the mechanics of how to cement stuff together. I mean, there's, there's simple compaction that can come up with something that's about as sturdy as a graham cracker. <laughs> you know, and that's that... that uh, well, that's not necessarily a terribly bad thing. Remember, the Jurong uh, is what? It's uh, 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 2,400 2, kilograms or something. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's considerably lighter than Curiosity or Perseverance, and it's got lots of wheels. Oh, wow. The weight around. Okay, let me, let me interrupt. Kintia's been able to post Tim's image, and when you click on it, it gets cool. really big. There's a figure leading two camels on the top of this Barkhan dune, and you can see the spine, you can see the lineations on the leading side of the dune, uh, which is sand spilling down. That's where you get that comb-like, very fine texture. But the scale is totally wrong for what we're seeing on Mars by a factor of probably a thousand. You know, it's just, they're, they're vaguely, they regularly look like each other but in detail remember tim you said you like details they're totally different 
I appreciate they're different, but we have different gravity and we have different materials. And I'm not saying the same. I'm just trying to, ex- uh, I'm just trying to explain The gravity is only one-third. The angle of repose yes. of sand dunes turns out to be exactly the same on any planet. It does not depend on gravity. I found that intriguing decades ago. I'm trying to remember who told me that, what geologist with NASA. So that's not a factor. Um, the material, again, the, the, the fineness, uh, we know that there are dunes because we see windblown dunes right around Perseverance that are classic dunes that do not have this, I'll use a more neutral term, right angle fluting. Does that satisfy everybody's you know, pension for being accurate? The fluting of these features on Mars <laughs> is stunning. Or what? It's staggering. John, you're being very quiet. Come on. I was wanting to throw in. So we were talking last week about after you study thousands of Mars images, you get to see the different building materials and recognize them. And the feathers, to me, look like the ribs of the the glass tubes. And in my... Oh, now that's interesting. Yeah, and all the dunes. And you see this material all over Mars. And I believe that... You know, Ron mentioned uh, how in the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, they, Mars had this energy source. And I think the tubes, you know, I, in my book, Old Souls, I call them travel tubes. You know, he had all these craft that were made out of this bone material that uh, it channeled this energy, just like we would have, say, magnets or that kind of thing here on Earth. And so when I see these dunes, obviously they're not dunes, um, I think of that material. Well, no, wait, 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 want... wait, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Why do you say obviously not dunes? Tell people why, to your expert eye, they cannot be dunes. I don't know. Common sense, you look at it, that's not a dune. There's, I don't know Common why sense. anyone would think it's not. I'll defend that. Common sense is the bios of the human computer. It's the it's the built it's the built in okay if you do this that'll happen uh, reflex that protects you until you can analyze it to death and come up with uh, your own wrong conclusions. No, no. So, <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. Well, the, uh, another but, thing. The I, one I thing I wanted. To, I'll, I'll, I'll let you. Let me let me jump on it. Just add this in. One thing that that is straight that is straight out of the science book. If you have an old science book. It talks about the that happens to mention such things. It will talk about the uh, uh, the basic uh, slope of a pile of sand or something. And there was serious consideration. In other words, the academics said, "Well, oh, yes, obviously it will be this." Uh, you're you're talking about what different. we call the. Hang on, we're talking about what geologists call the angle of repose. Yeah, okay. And it was thought that it would be different on a planet with different gravity, and it's not. It's not. That's the amazing, one of the unsung amazing discoveries of the space program. We've been on the moon. Yeah. We've been on Mars. We've taken pictures of sand dunes, of, 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 of snow drifts at the north and south pole of Mars, and the angle of repose does not change with gravity, which is really weird. Okay. Well, it just that, means their so, premise was wrong. It's led okay, to, that's, that's what led some people to well, say it's so t- 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 Tim, Tim okay, go something. ahead. I'm finished. Yeah. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry, Mark. I, 
I did mention that, again, I'm shooting from the hip for this. I'm not trying to say I'm some specialist in this field, but I'm just saying to you that I said either the angle, the gravity may is different, or the particles are different, or the material is different. So, for example, I understand what you're saying, and you totally validated the gravitational aspect of this. But what if the molecular structure is different, or the material is different? Are you saying that a pile of ball bearings will create the same angle as a pile of uh, graphene, for example? If they're small enough, yes. Uh, but that's the point, right. isn't it? So, yeah, it's all a matter of scale. Yeah, you can make you can make a you can make a steeply tilted pile of something if you carefully arrange them, <laughs> you know. And uh, but something may knock it over. But if you just drop them out of the sky until they pile up, then uh, you're going to get the same you're going to get the same slope angle on um, any planet, pretty much. As far as we can I think the, go ahead. I, I think the elephant in the room in, in, in this conversation, I think that the two most straight, the three strangest things to me are, first of all, these dunes or whatever they are, they, uh, they also look like fish. Uh, oh, fish. you just said it, but, Tim. But you the, just said the magic. Hang on, hang on. Guys, yeah, we are, we are, all going hold on, we are at the top of the hour. Okay. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We are at the top of the hour. I think we're going to be joined by by Andrew Curry when we come back. Um, it's a really interesting conversation because it's like it's like the first time we're encountering something which is contravening theory. It's like why is it contravening theory? What is the reason? why terrestrial theory seems to have broken down in terms of another planet. Is it possible, is it just possible, that we're running into something which is uh, truly alien? Is it possible that, as Tim said, that there are materials that are different and operate with different inter- molecular forces which in fact are creating complex geometries in this environment and do not create the same complex geometries on earth well we're going to find out very soon when we return to the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland and we shall return The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back to the other side of midnight for this now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. We're discussing are the objects that the Chinese landed next to and then apparently ran away from, are they just natural sand dunes or are they something more? My vote, and I think Ron's vote, not sure about John, uh, is there artificial? Uh, Tim, from his analysis, is there, they don't conform to the geometries that we're expecting, rectilinear geometry of terrestrial artificial archaeology. But is that the only archaeology that we know? And the answer, of course, is no. And I have one more interesting detail that I want to kind of uh, uh, go into here, which is that, Tim, if, if you look at the uh, details of the large angle image that you posted, let me go back and actually try to find that. Uh, it is image number, uh, image number two, okay? If you look at the details of, the, of those structures you've outlined in blue, they seem to have more geometry on the northern part than on the southern, although that doesn't seem to be a hard and fast rule. What's really interesting about the objects that are in the bottom of that depression, the two things we're calling the wings or the feathers or whatever, is they have this incredibly complex radial geometry on the south side of the spine. And on the north side of the spine, there is, to my eye and my measurements, much more conventional rectilinear uh, geometry in 3D, almost like you had the fusion of two different uh, architectural forms in one set of objects. And they're much mm -hmm. less eroded than the features on the plane outside the, quote, crater. Thoughts? Well, well, Richard, as you know from our conversation, I just want to finish this off and then hand it back to, to you guys. But three points, the three, three strange things are, say it looks like a, a shoulder fish. There are lots of these objects facing the same direction, except for the ones in the crater. The ones in the crater or depression are shielded by the crater or depression. So therefore, maybe these have not had the little particles of wind blowing to fill up the gaps, the little flutes, as you mentioned earlier. That's a possibility. The next strange thing is each one of them has this crest or spinal feature. Uh, and the, really the, the fourth thing which you've just pointed out is, uh, I said three, now there are four, <laughs> is that the ones inside the crater are going in a different direction. So if they are using the very, very, you know, uh, both feet off the ground analogy, if this is like a shoulder fish, the ones in the depression are swimming a different way. And if you ask me, what could it possibly be? And again, I'm, I'm really both feet off the ground as opposed to keeping one on the ground, which I usually like to do. I would say that they look like two huge you know, whale, uh, fossilized whale mm -hmm. carcasses, which are... Can I jump in? in? Oh, now that's intriguing. Wow. Yes, I've been waiting for someone to mention fish or in particular cetaceans because when I look at Number two, your photo here, number two, Tim, with just a, a clear mind and a deep breath, I see something that I've felt for a number of years, 
And actually, the novel I'm writing now, The Dolphinius Effect, has to do with, with this. So I believe that on Mars, they held the cetaceans in high regard, more so than the other animals of the planet, because dolphins had a magnetic powers. Stop, 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 stop. John, we have to establish cetaceans on Mars. How do you do that? Oh, just from the, um, the images of Mars where you see, you know, here's a phoenix bird mountain. Well, they have mountains that are dolphins, too. In other words, you're talking so, geoglyphs. Geoglyphs. Okay. There's, Art forms whales on, a, on a very large scale of, of landforms in the, in the form of various familiar creatures. And you're saying, actually, it was Van Flandern who started this thing by claiming that one object at Sidonia, uh, I think he called it the dolphin. Um, so continue. Well, it's uh, my feeling that they held them in high regard and they had some capabilities that resonated with the technology and the energy source that we've mentioned a few times now. And this capacity that the cetaceans have it's, has to do with keeping the planet stable and its uh, magnetic field and, and this kind of well, thing. Wait, wait, let's, let's, let, us, and, let, us, let us hit it on the head. In other words, are you claiming, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to attack you on this because I've got some new, <laughs> new data. Are you claiming there were at one time in the very venerable Martian history cetaceans, whales, and dolphins in the seas of Mars? Uh, there's no question in my mind. Okay, let me stop you there. Again, I like data. I like science. Remember back when I was looking at the Athena rover Spirit and Opportunity, and I was aghast and shocked and and angered to my core when NASA A found on a microscopic image a trilobite, a broken off end of an ancient terrestrial organism in the primeval seas of Earth, roughly, I think they lived in the Devonian several hundred million years ago, and then they promptly ground it to dust. They didn't analyze it. They didn't take close-up pictures of it from different angles. They didn't do any chemistry. They simply put the rat over it, which was a rough, you know, circular saw, and they ground it to dust. Now, finding a trilobite or a family of terrestrial creatures in the seas of Earth on Mars, according to standard Darwinian evolutionary theory, is impossible. Impossible. So there's only two possible reasons why you could have an absolute counterpart to an ancient terrestrial organism found as a fossil on a planet like Mars. One of which was it was imported. There was ancient commerce between two worlds and organisms were freely shipped back and forth by intelligent species. Or two, and this is the one that's even more mind-boggling and profound to its core, what if evolution is not random Darwinian, you know, uh, luck of the draw, but in fact is a directed hyperdimensional information flow which manifests wherever the materials are available in a biosphere so the same forms keep coming up again and again 
and again. And this, of course, completely bollocks up the idea of Darwinian random evolution anywhere in the solar system or in the galaxy or in the universe, for that matter, and goes to the core and heart of the biological sciences, which is another reason why NASA would never want to tell us what they found, because it completely upends everything they think they know. Yeah, and you would end up with humans with that that pointed ear. Exactly. Like like Spock. Called (laughs) Mr. Spock. (laughs) I have a question. Exactly Mm -hmm. on target, Richard. I think the Darwinian evolution theory is, is very fictional, very, very dodgy. So but thinking it and having data are two different things, as I say over and over again. We've got data, and, they, and the rapidity with which NASA destroyed, almost on live television, this trilobite years and years ago, was, was, a, was, a, was a crime against science. Can I finish my point? Well, yes. Sorry, sorry, John. Sorry. Oh, I just wanted to mention that um, this could be a depiction. You know, Mars is the art gallery of our solar system. So this could be depicting uh, an annual migration. It could be art. It could be. We know there's a lot of art on Mars. It's, it's not the planet of war. It's the planet of art. God, have we seen that? Tim, I really like the idea that we could be looking at two fossilized skeletons of two creatures that used to live in the Martian seas. Remember, I found a ship, you know, kind of like the QE2, except she's 2,000 feet long. I forget exactly where on Mars. And um, I and Keith Landy have been trying to get NASA to take MRO close-ups because these images came to us from the earlier mission, uh, Mars Surveyor. Uh, And NASA has refused, even to an insider like Keith Laney, to take close-up pictures of my, you know, Martian cruise ship. Well, if you have 2,000-foot-long ocean liners, artificial vessels, and the reason they're that big is because of the, you know, the wave action of Martian seas where the gravity is different, you'll get different waves. I mean, think of the marine technology required to ply the ancient seas of Mars. Well, if you've got 2,000-foot-long artificial ships, there's nothing that would forbid several hundred-foot-long organic creatures like whales, like cetaceans, evolving under Martian conditions once the genome was established. Maybe your 2,000-foot uh, ship was a fishing boat. <laughs> uh, no, it looks like a modern well, cruise ship. I am joking. <laughs> Yeah. No, even the Earth ancients had ships that big. Not a lot of them, but there, they, occasionally there was one almost that big. You mean the Chinese again? So, or was it the Egyptians uh, that wanted to build something? Of yeah, that? I, the Egyptians the wanted to. We have no evidence of it. The, the Chinese apparently did, but they tore them all down. Okay, I heard, I, heard, I heard another... Uh, um, yeah, I, want, I would like to jump in real quick. Ron's always got the interesting stuff. Have you guys looked at number six? He's got the split the uh, split picture of the tile work on the left side, and then on the right side there's dunes, but they're covering what looks like a flat surface that's got curves and linear lines coming from it, and it's completely flat. It looks like the tile work on the left side 
in a similar situation, but it's all flat. Wait, wait, which, which, which number, Ron, section is it? Number six. Number six. Okay. Number six. The one on the left is a museum floor that is a, repli- a careful replica. Number six? Of the, number six is two images, yeah. one on top of the other. And one's a close-up. Well, all right, let me look at the numbers. And it's, I was going with what he said. Uh, I know what Amogee means. Um, the, it's not number six. Sorry. I, I don't mind jumping back and forth. Uh, there there it is. Uh, no, it's number four. It's That's number what I four, thought. Sir. It might be number four, yeah. By the way, yeah, uh, yeah, before we get further away, I misspoke drastically. The objects mm-hmm. that uh, that the Spirit Rover destroyed were not trilobites. They were crinoids. Mm-hmm. Trilobites are much older. They're one of the first hard shell uh, ancient creatures of the Cambrian explosion, something like 600 million years ago on Earth. I have no doubt, based on the crinoids that we found, <clears throat> that there will be trilobites found on in other words, this is the this is the the huge paradigm shattering discovery that biology, a la Chandra Wickrama Singh, is not unique to Earth. We're going to find similar DNA and similar creatures everywhere in the galaxy. I agree with you, but Richard, I hate to be the one to say this, but you're the one going off topic. No, I'm not. But, I'm just correcting uh, an error. Yeah, let everybody finish what the – yeah, well, let everybody finish. So let's go back to number four. Number four. Yeah. yeah. Look at the, the right side. Since he brought it. That is a perfect okay, that, flat surface that the, the sand is on, on top of. But yet there's perfect curves and uh, lines coming from the curve. You have to blow it up to see the little the lines. Yeah, the, you have to blow that uh, up. Breaks between the between the plates. When you I, click I, on I, it, I it, when you click on it, <clears throat> it gets really large. Are you see, talking about those very fine lines that look like they're curvilinear and it's like huge tiles? Yep, they're absolutely symmetrical. Yeah. They are. Mm-hmm. And there's this and dark sandy it, material. Tim, look at the grain size of the dune material. I'm looking. Yes, indeed, I can see okay. some similarities. Yeah, the uh, so I guess it's relevant. Yeah, but the uh, yeah the one on the left is a replica is a careful replica uh, played out in a museum floor in Arizona, and it's Chaco Canyon. Uh, the design comes from Chaco Canyon. It's one of the wall glyphs. I found the glyph, but it's it's yeah. This is much more demonstrative but it's it's faithful i just thought there was some similarity in appearance um is this the only image we have from odyssey this is an odyssey image right no 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 the one on the left is just like i said it's out of a museum brochure the one on the right is a nav cam image from curiosity Ah, just like a week ago it's very current but they're not they don't seem to take color pictures with their mass cam anymore so this is a mass cam like picture taken by the nav cam. So there's no so, there, so there's no panorama of this region. No, there's a, there's no context images or anything to go it, with it. It I looks mean, like a palazzo things. floor. Yeah, yeah, it does. It really What's does. What's the scale, Ron? Do you know? Uh, no, I do, uh, they don't give you that information. Mm. Um, the uh, I I just have to go with the human scale thing. That's the um, it's. Most everything that Curiosity takes, the picture is about the same as it would look if you were standing there. 
you know, so you have to take the scale of the overall image and with something that's effectively a close up, which they can't really do is uh, that's hard to do. Uh, the little gizmo thing at the top, when you don't blow it up, it looks like a can opener. One of those fancy ones with the uh, <laughs> corkscrew built into it. Uh, but if you do blow it up, oh, let me just say one thing. It's 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 out of the fringes of this because it applies to what Tim was saying and what uh, John was saying and everything else. Relative to the pictures, uh, unless you have a 4K screen on your phone, uh, which I certainly don't. But, yeah, the pictures are never going to look any better than the resolution of the screen you're seeing them on. And so no matter how much we clean them up, no matter how, and I'm sure that Tim's got top-end equipment that beats mine for days, and, but no matter how nice you make the picture, it's going to be, uh, it's not even going to be 1080 uh, <laughs> looked at on most people's uh, screens and that, so that, you know, it automatically reduces the resolution. It doesn't just make it bigger you know, the salesman pitch. It's, so that that's one of the problems we have, that a lot of this stuff, they are fine details. And so it's, uh, you know, a lot of Tim's work, yeah, you have to you have to see it on a proper screen with a proper video card, and then you can appreciate the work that he puts into it or any of my thrown-together hastily stuff. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, uh, you have to carry that. But I have to say what I think that, uh, the feathers are. I just. I kind of like the name. Um, is uh, they. I think that's part of the architect of the architectural superstructure of a big gigantic building that was basically cylindrical in shape. And the nice, perfectly round craterette that it's sitting in uh, is just about the right size and configuration for a foundation. Because of course it would go down a ways. And that what were all the stuff scattered around in the distance, much of that is pieces. And I think this was a common form of our architecture in that zone, country, nation, uh, gnome, uh, territory, whatever they called it. Uh, and when it all got blowed up, uh, pieces of it were strewn all over the place. And the pieces that were solid, meaning the superstructure, which may very well be some sort of glass uh, or kind of, you know, tempered uh, uh, composite material uh, was the only stuff that stuck together. See, and I'm so really waiting, uh, guys, for Andrew's sketches, and I believe, Andrew, you are with us. Yeah, he should be. Uh, yes, I am. There you are. Get closer to the mic. You're echoing. Okay. I'll uh, jump in, Andrew. Much closer, much closer. Hang on a sec. It should be. Oh. <laughs> hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. How's You're that? echoing. Okay. Okay. Hello. It, It'll probably modulate pretty soon here, I hope. Yeah, we got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. And when Cynthia gets the rest of your your stuff posted, we can go to you in the last segment and we can talk again about what you see in the Zerong ruins, as I've called them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fascinating. I um, Hello, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. Hey, Andrew. Hey. So, hey, yeah. Andrew. Thank you. Um Canadian Thanksgiving weekend this weekend, boys and girls. So um, lots of things going on. So that's where I was. So I'm, I'm coming in a little late, folks. But uh, yeah, I had a few things that I sent in. Except you had tofu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were celebrating a, uh, a different tradition, a Hindu tradition of some friends of ours. Actually, one of our guests on the, sh- on the show before, Arun Silverage. And uh, I can't pronounce the name of the... Um, 
celebration, but it's a series of eight gods that are celebrated this time of the year. And it was fascinating, everybody. It was, um, you know, they had the swastika, you know, which is basically a counter, uh, counter rotating, uh, symbol and it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it was a hyperdimensional torsion field energy symbol. Exactly. Before yeah. Hitler totally purloined it and destroyed yes. it. He, yeah. he turned it around and changed the, uh, the direction of rotation. Talk about I branding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, but it was, uh, so thank you and I'm, I apologize for my tardiness. It's all right. Yeah. So, uh, overall impression, uh, we're, we're having this interesting food fight, I'm sorry, conversation about are the Zerong ruins ruins or are they just something natural that's just weird? Well, I, I did a quick little sketch. Um, I'm not sure if uh, Kanthea has it up yet. Uh, let me have a look. So let me go to my items. And, whoops. Oh, no. So far, I get your bio. Oh yeah, I think that's. Oh sorry. no, she's got she's got several posted. She's got one and two posted. Oh, man in the moon. Man in the moon. Oh no, those were actually that does come into play, but that was something I had sent off last week. Uh, hmm. So my stuff is not up yet, Richard and everybody. Okay. But um, to answer your question, Richard, I see foundations in that in in those ruins in what I think are ruins as well. Um, I'm seeing corners. Um, you know, if I walk away from those wings right now, I'm seeing a massive foundational site. And I actually found a very interesting uh, discovery from this past April in Scarborough in the UK. And they found this some um, stately home and, and there's a beautiful flyover by a drone and the shapes and the sort of foundations of this stately home, in, you know, in this part of the UK. Is so it just echoes these kinds of forms that I that I really yeah and it, hopefully my items when they come up you'll be able to see it and in, in fact if you go man in the moon number two Richard do you want to describe really quickly uh, what oh we don't even have the image that I want but can you describe the Disney von Braun um, collaboration about man in the man in the moon and this does have relevance to a poster that I'm going to bring up. Yeah, back in the day in the 50s when Collier's put out, which was the equivalent of one of those big glossy color <clears throat> rotogravure magazines like Saturday Evening Post or Life or whatever, Collier's magazine did a huge spread because of the editor uh, whose name escapes me, who wound up being um, a major player, a producer at CBS. And actually was the guy that found me <clears throat> to work for Cronkite. Very weird story there looking back. Anyway, um, after the Collier's spread, Disney and uh, Bonstell and Von Braun got together and they decided to create a series of hour-long features for uh, you know the Disney Wonderful World of Color. And they did a moon expedition. They did a Mars expedition what life on mars might look like i think they did three in the series anyway the first one was sending his big rocket in an orbital uh, trip around the moon and it's all fictionalized it's done in an animated cartoon style it's not live action it's all cartoons done in the uh, illustrated format of the superman comics uh, you know of, of, of films of the 1950s um and as their their first expedition is going around the far side of the moon, 
they drop flares and you can see in the darkness lit up by the flares that the spacecraft has dropped this incredible geometric, very rectilinear set of features that look like an ancient lunar base. And the narration never talks about them. The crew, in terms of their air-to-ground simulation, never refer to them. It's just on the screen for a few seconds, and then it goes away, Emily Dickinson fashion, because obviously Von Braun and uh, uh, Disney were telegraphing their ancient structures, man-made structures on the moon, and we're going to find them one day when we go to the moon. Ta-da. Yeah, and this, so just to, if people are looking at these images, I had, I was working last weekend listening to you guys, but I had fired off a couple of these images where I did capture that moment, Richard, when the flare lights up and dramatically holds, 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 holds those foundations and then dim, 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 dim. And they hold on it for quite a while. Oh, like yeah. You say there's just dead, dead silence. And but no maybe, commentary. Yes. And the astronauts are looking out the window going, Oh, got to put my head back down. And it was in response to when you were talking about Elon Musk bringing his folks around the moon and what they might take pictures of. Mm-hmm. Well, I used the same image in one of my posters, which actually might be up now. Oh, yes, it is. So if you go to my number three. Well, we need to re- you have to refresh, okay? Yeah. So, so if clicking you refresh- number three. Ah, there we are. There's the wrong ruins in all their glory. <clears throat> yeah. And then what I did is a little sketch just to bring out what I'm seeing as some um, very clear foundations of something. And then the next image is uh, the remains, like I said, of a Roman stately home in Scarborough uh, in, in Britain in the UK. These are all in number three. It's a poster with several elements mm-hmm. above each other. Okay. Exactly. And then below that, is that screen catcher from that Von Braun Disney collaboration. Yep, that's the one. And I know we're about 60 seconds away from the break, mm. uh, Richard, so I don't want to interrupt you from doing that. Okay, that's very nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> ah, gosh. It never ends here. It never ends. This is a very... Oh, I like int- that sketch. Isn't that oh, amazing? Like that. So hold it there. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking about the Russians going into orbit to film their first feature-length space film, which is endemic to space. We're talking about the Chinese going to Mars, having advertised they were going to announce ruins. They land next to what many of our team members think are really interesting ruins, and they run in the other direction. And uh, there's more to all of these stories You were on the other side of midnight. We'll continue for the next half hour, the last segment on this Saturday night, Sunday morning. Stay tuned and do not touch that dial.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning. Andrew, you had the floor. Yes, thank you, Richard. So, again, if we go to my items in um, the other side of midnight.com, and you go to my number three. So what I did is I sort of looked at this shape, um, and I don't know if you guys have been – some people have been calling it a crater. I mean, it could very well be. But it is so bisymmetrical again. Again, I'm not looking at the wings right now. I did a little separate study uh, at a ground level very, very quickly that I have asked Cynthia to post, so she might be able to do that in the next few minutes. But my focus was on this, what to me looks like a foundational something. And what I did is I did a drawing that to me, again, Richard, the more time I spend with this material, and again, anybody looking will understand this if you do spend the time with it, the more finesse you find in the imagery, the more sort of, and when I say delicate, del- delicateness. It's almost like you have to train your eyes yeah. and get out of a terrestrial perspective. Yeah, and, you, and, and things start to pop out. You start to see patterns. And I mean, again, many people would argue, oh, you can do that to any landform. And I, I just, I know some, you know, you can get landforms that can become very symmetrical, right? They can be very, very natural. But we see so much of this on Mars. And here's another example to me of this situation. Um, and again, what I did is I put it against a, a, a terrestrial example, something recently found in 2021, the Roman ruin. And then, as I say, the screen capture from the fictional uh, a, a, a production between Disney and Von Braun and the whole promotion of space. And I just think that we're seeing very similar things, Richard, here, at least in the most foundational way. Um, now, if we refresh again, uh, well, actually, no, let's scroll over to my number four, because I, I noticed something last week, Richard had posted an image of these sort of feather-like somethings. I think they're structures. And he had compared it to you, Richard, you compared it to uh, the space or the, the ships that were used in um, uh, Princess of Mars and John Carter. And I sort of blurted out to you. Have you seen the trailers for the new Dune movie uh, by the no. Canadian? Yes. So in the Dune movie, the new uh, production by Denis Villeneuve, 
he is a, a French, well, French Canadian, he's Canadian uh, filmmaker. He did uh, Blade Runner, the latest Blade Runner 2049, I think. And he also did Arrival, which had these giant inky black octopuses that suddenly came to Earth and these giant. Yeah, and again, I look at the ships and they're literally like little dragonflies with these weird little feathered wings. And in the trailer, at least, I haven't seen the movie yet, but in the trailer, they're really, really prominent. They're really showing it. And if you click on the poster that I put together, I mean, I'm just looking at aesthetics, right? A look. And again, the structure and even this, um, there's a third image down in my screen captures from this Dune. We're uh, talking movie. number. We're talking number four now in your section. Num- num- yeah, and there's a flyover of these little buzzing, you know, One, ships. Two, three, four. Okay, got it. Yeah, and again, whoever did the production design for Dune, I, I mean, I'm really eager to see it because it's kind of like the ruins that we're seeing. Well, they look I, exactly I, like the ornithopter aerial thingies in John Carter. Yes. When they look like the Man of Steel opening the first third of the movie is on Krypton, it, it looks like Mars. Yeah, and we all know that Dune, the planet Arrakis, it's Mars. It's Mars, of course, <laughs> of course. It's Mars. So and Al and Altair Foreign Forbidden Planet was Mars. By the way, announcement, I think I've got the right guy to spend three hours talking about all the incredible details in Forbidden Planet that no one has noticed. Except me, I guess. And we'll all have fun with that. Sorry, sorry, Andrew, keep going. No, no, no. So again, people can enjoy it. Again, this is this is a production designer, um, and yeah, you know, everybody's got in their imagination a, a, big, a big canon of science fiction to be able to do this. But it's just fascinating. Like even the even. This production, it, it was an aesthetic, Richard. It just, it just, it tweaked me when I saw the. Well, yeah, it's like form follows function. Now, let me tell you my weird, weird, crazy idea. When I first saw these just north of where the Chinese landed, I thought, oh my God, they looked so new compared to the, you know, debris around it. Yes. Maybe they are new, meaning they're much younger, and maybe they literally fell from the sky. They're two huge airships. Now, why would they have? looking like oars well think of how anti-gravity works suppose in the torsion model you only get an anti-gravity field which basically reduces inertia and makes something lighter in a vertical plane in other words it'll simply go up and down vertically from the core of the planet all right you get no lateral forces it doesn't let you move through the air or through space it literally just pushes you away from the center of a planet or suspends the weight uh, of, of normal gravity. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. Then the question would be, well, how do you move sideways? On Earth, we've created something called propellers. But suppose your model for using ancient zero-gravity technology, kind of like Cavarite, which just makes something weightless. Remember, suppose you don't have any models for propellers. Suppose the only model you've got are birds flying, which have wings and feathers and move by stroking mechanical things against the air, which pushes you in the other direction. So if you've got a zero-gravity craft, but you've got to move it sideways by some propelling mechanism, 
maybe huge Roman galley type oars that are more air catching like feathers would be your logical invention. And I'm not married to the idea, but I think I can see a genesis of that morphology if these are two, not cetaceans, John, but two huge ancient airships a la the Barsoomian Burroughs model or the Dune model that basically were uncovered by a later excavation having crashed on Mars from a dim, distant, previous, but much younger epic of civilization on the Red Planet. Everybody's speech. I was going to say, we're having one of those <laughs> pregnant pauses where they all say, is, uh, Richard, is, is, is really he really like not? At least... Go ahead. I'd really like I'd really like to do one of those movie posters that I put together. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, uh, Andrew, we, we will the, come back. The, yeah, there's a scene even in a Marvel movie. Loki's yelling. Okay, at uh, set, it, set it up properly. You had one job. Set, 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 one set, job. Set it up you properly. Do the do the setup. Do the setup. We want to uh, yeah. we want to go to Ron's items. We want to look at Anybody which one. There? Hello. We we're all here. Okay, try the first one. Uh, which is called Alita. Did we lose Richard? We could, I think we lost Richard. I'm right here. Oh, Richard. Okay. I'm right here. Are. Okay. It's called Alita. Can you hear that me, was, guys? That movie was made. It's a Russian movie. It was made in 1924. And the if you look at the um, uh, color, can you hear me? There, it's it's uh, down in the on the bottom right. Side Can of it. you hear it me? looks rather pornographic, but no, she's not about to um, um, engage so a robot. It's a telescope, and she was watching a telescope. But she is the queen of Mars. It's a it's an absolute ripoff of Princess of Mars, and it doesn't make any reference to it at all because it was they say it was based on a book by Alexei Tolstoy, who is uh, not really related to um, the famous Tolstoy, the writer. Uh, but he's in the, he's got the same bloodline. They have royal families, just like we have the Van, Vanderbilts and the um, Ron. Can you hear me? And so forth. You know that that turns out to be one of those. Um, but anyway, Alexei's first book was um, basically a ripoff of Princess of Mars, and this is a movie about it. Hello, but it influenced hello. every science fiction movie since. And I, you can just look at the pictures and see that. And the reason that it has a hammer and sickle. Uh, in a in a gratuitous shot in the movie, which is shown on there, is because they were trying to placate the communist government, which had just been around for like half a dozen years at that point. And uh, then uh, it was an Earth guy is dreaming of Mars. So the whole movie ends up being like the Wizard of Oz. He wakes up and realizes that uh, he had not, in fact, killed his wife in a fit of rage and then built a spaceship and gone to Mars to get away from it and had all this had this affair with the um, hmm. uh, Queen Elita. Uh, there's a scene I wished I could have included because it's absolutely hilarious. But there was, it's Yeah, Ron, not, sorry to interrupt. Are you there? Oh, there he is. Yeah, there he is. Yeah, we're there. We're done. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, no, no, keep, keep going. I've, I've been having problems here technically. Okay. Everything just went dead. Someone okay. does not like what we're doing. Oh, my, my, my. Hey, Ron, Ron, can I jump in just for yes. a quick second? Yeah, this is a leader poster. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The forms, again, these these spiky, long, kind of quasi-geometric, you know, um, triangles and half circles. Again, I understand it's, a, it's an early film, but again, this 
Zerong site kind of has these same sort of forms, you know. It's, it's yeah, it uh, has that same aesthetic. You're right. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. It, uh, and it it influenced everything beyond every movie after it. It's uh, uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis came right. out just a couple years later, and it was very much based on it. And uh, I mean, visually, you know. But the uh, yeah, the reason it kind of disappeared um, was that um, the uh, at some point. Uh, the Russian government decided that it was actually it should actually be banned because they realized that the Earth guy to Mars and seduced the Queen and thereby fomented a revolution, which brought glorious socialist uh, <laughs> happiness to Mars. Was uh, honest to God, it's it's parts of it are hilarious. Uh, was in fact an opportunist showing up and uh, taking advantage of civil unrest to upset the um, system there. And they didn't think that was a good model to fit because that's exactly what the Bolsheviks did on earth. Uh, so they banned the movie, but uh, it's, yeah, you can get it in 4k on DVD if you want. Uh, that's why those pictures are pretty clear. Uh, the second one, of course, is the important one, the devil girl from Mars, because, oh, of uh, course. well, what's not to like <laughs> the upper right picture is you can see that she was actually, she came here and was able to uh, convince the Earth forces that they couldn't stand against her because she could land her spaceship so close to a telephone pole that it didn't even bump the wires um, <laughs> or something like that. And and she has a, uh, yes, she has a ray gun that looks kind of like an egg beater, uh, but um, it uh, she, rocks the, she rocks the leather suit. She's actually a Scottish actress. And in the lower picture, I mean, how could I not? Look at that robot. You know, she's explaining to everybody that this robot is going to zap and destroy everything if they don't behave themselves. And I, that's just uh, that's just that's just too good to imagine. I mean, that's one of the got to be one of the great B, B movies of all time that nobody's ever seen. That robot uh, looks just like the robot in one of the Fleischer Studio Superman cartoons from the 40s. You're, where you're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Oh, well, I, of course, artists never steal anything, but you know, it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's uncannily like that. And, um, that, uh, okay. And that's, see, I could go through those real quick. Okay. The last one of the movie things there, miscellaneous things, the upper right, upper left is, uh, relates to a movie called, um, the silent star which was uh, from East We're Europe talking number 19... three now, the miscellaneous space? Yeah. You can stare at them all you like, but I just wanted to run through these in a few minutes so we got time left for everybody else to tie everything up. Uh, that was 1960 out of East Germany somewhere, and according to its own internal timeline, by the year 2003, uh, communism had gloriously spread across the earth and everything was harmonious and wonderful, and then they discovered this alien artifact in the Gobi Desert. Uh, which turned out to be a flight recorder from some spaceship, and it was from Venus. I don't know how they figured that part out, but they went. So they built a spaceship, very sexy one there, and they went to Venus, uh, where they found that the civilization was completely destroyed by a war, but what was left of it was planning on attacking Earth and doing the same here. And how it came out, I'm oh, not I sure. Oh, I saw that a the, couple years ago. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. That's uh, and it was based on the. Uh, it's actually it not bad. Adapted. It's actually not bad. Yeah. Adapted from Stanislaw Lem's. Yep, yep. Stanislaw Lem's first published novel, which was not called that, but that's uh, close to it, and um, it uh, very interesting. Um, oh, I missed one on um, Elita. The another interesting was it. Let me see. I, these things run together. We're running yeah, out of time. Was, uh, okay. Yeah, no, it was uh, the people on Mars, going back to Alita, uh, were actually descended from the Atlanteans So um, in, the, in the book, but it's not mentioned in any of the movies. On to the, uh, the other panels. The one, the one next to it with the uh, young people in the nice spacesuits was called uh, Adolescence in the universe that came out of Russia in 1973 or four. There was a calendar problem with that. And I don't know much of anything about it except there they are. Uh, but the, uh, the lower left right below the picture of the guys standing on that set of Venus is one of the few pictures actually taken of the surface of Venus by the mm. Russians. Yep. And uh, there's somehow it's uncannily similar, although you wouldn't get any color down there. It's too dark. You know, that's just what their pro came up with. And the, the last one there on the bottom right, of course, is the Pièce de Résistance. The movie's called I Killed Einstein, Gentlemen. It came out of <laughs> Czechoslovakia in 1970. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, the uh, – oh, it's uh, – these mad scientists uh, decided that they wanted to fix everything, so they built a time machine to go back and uh, in time and kill Albert Einstein before he could publish anything – so that the nuclear physics that was necessary for the stuff they were doing wouldn't be it wouldn't have become possible. Ah, and, uh, that's the short form of that. And so it, it kind of and of course they screwed everything up. It kind of like uh, my favorite TV show in that genre, Legend of Legends of Tomorrow. They sort of gloriously screw up every single week. Hmm. And. And until you've seen the special effect of their invisible craft sitting on the ground and a bird flying into it and then dropping like a stone. I just, I don't know why nobody ever did that before. Birds just flying along, minding its own business, and bam, it falls straight down. There's just <laughs> something about that. There's just uh, so much we don't know. Anyway, that's, okay, that's the movie ones. Uh, so you can, um, the ones at the, the bottom three are, of course, you know, Martian stuff. So that's, um, I'm sure other people have stuff to wrap up. So go ahead. I can I can recycle those. Yeah, we've got about ten minutes, give or take. Um, Andrew, let's go Thank back. You. Andrew. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's let's I go think. back. So your assessment is we're looking at ruins. What do you think of my idea that they're excavated ruins, meaning they were at the bottom of this depression, which is not a crater. By the way, do you see that beautiful square foundation? Which, yes. Which is tilted to the right by forty-five degrees. Yeah. Tim, did yeah. you see that? Which image are we looking at now? The famous one of the Zerong crater. And probably your number two. Okay. Uh, my number two. You know, the wide angle. Mm-hmm. So there's a square element somewhere you're saying. Wait a minute. Is number two the right one? Actually, probably number three is better. Because it's bigger scale. Yeah, you okay. can really see it on number three. 
And is it in the crater or around? It, it, no, the it's, no, it's in the crater. In the crater. And again, without lines, you're not going to find it in the time we've got. So we're not going to waste time trying to describe no. it. I will, I will, I'll send you so an no, overlay. No, the answer is. I, <laughs> now, that's interesting because to me, it leaped out. Andrew? Well, like I said, to me, it looks like, a, like some ancient foundations. I know Tim put something in the chat box saying, could it be a, like a tiered mining operation in there, which it could be. Um, but it looks artificial to me, Richard, as I said, with my comparison, but it looks to me that way. Um, I, I would like to show you guys one more thing. This is a really um, fantastical concept that I just threw together tonight before I was able to get on the show. I, it's my number five. I call it, for some reason, long scale. And it's, uh, there's this archway in that. Oh, yes. Yes. And I found that a very interesting structure. Now, I, I did a, my number five, you click on that. I did a, you know, I, I have five astronauts walking towards this archway. And I probably haven't splayed out those, the sides of this thing well enough. But, I, I mean, this is just my imagination. I'm having some fun pretending that I'm down on the Martian surface looking towards this thing. But that archway just looks so perfect to me. Well, it appears to be uh, on the bottom feather or the bottom, uh, you know, wing. It appears to be toward the right-hand edge of the bottom object. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I saw I it immediately when I enlarged it and did the work. And I think you've been pretty faithful to the scale, given the size of, you know, God. Why didn't they go down in there and take surface images? Yeah, like I just did. <laughs> yeah. How would they get down into it? Because the slope That's angle the is so shallow. You know, they've got they this this little rover, they've tested it for 30 degree slopes and they went into remember mm-hmm. that first paper where they talked about the slippage angle of the wheels and how oh, it was vividly. how it was not significant at all. No, I mean, it looks steep if you're looking at it from orbit. But if you're on the ground, those those descent into the bottom would have been very, very gradual. They could easily have found their way down if they wanted to. They didn't want to. Yeah, to me, Richard, it looks like a very obvious entranceway. It just has yep. a sl- – if you can imagine in – big sports stadiums when the football players come out oftentimes the opening kind of looks this way there's a sloped side where mm-hmm. the fans are all sitting and it just has that feel to me so as i said in my number five just for fun i went down on the surface in my imagination and you know give you a sense and i think that's what we have to do because they're not doing it for us for the, the real way mm-hmm. or at least they're not showing us the real pictures one or the other wouldn't it be crazy if they've actually gone and done this and everything we're yeah. seeing now is based on the first imagery so they could get a 3D, you know, computer graphic set to to wander around in and in mm-hmm. fact they're actually going and doing the real mission while pretending they're going way south? Am I sounding too paranoid? <laughs> no. no. But I think of that software a lot, Richard, where you should be able to take some of these structures. We talked last week about doing reconstruction where you see they fell over and you can kind of tell where, mm. which direction it fell and it broke mm-hmm. apart. And, and there, 
I'm waiting for them to come up with some software where they can do exactly what you just said is changes and and then they can rotate around it and they look underneath it and so forth. Oh, I've already seen that. Well, then get yourself the arrested. Per- the police departments all have software that does that kind of stuff. Yep. It's just mm-hmm. not, I mean, early on in the Perseverance mission, yeah. someone posted over at unmannedspaceflight.com a beautiful three-dimensional fly around of a quote rock on the surface. They did exactly that, John. So it's open source software mm. over here. And if it's open source, the Chinese, of course, also have it. Okay, guys, we only have about uh, four minutes left. Uh, Tim, why don't you go first? What, what, what would your takeaway be for this evening and the, the Russian mission? Well, okay, well, let's just focus on the, the feather thing for a second, because I think that Andrew's sketches have opened my mind, opened my eyes, and I can see the photograph in a different way now that what was a crest has now been potentially mined down to a lower level, exposing a, a sort of a spinal column above. And it, it kind of reminds me of some of the awful mountaintops around here, which or beautiful mountaintops around this part of <laughs> Turkey, where people just bulldoze them off and put oh. expensive homes on top. And in, during the construction period, it does actually look like this. Now, again, I'm not always wanting to relate it to something on, on this planet, but I want to understand it in a way. And I think Andrew's sketch has opened up that, you know, that terrific, to imagine that. Terrific. Uh, in West Virginia, they, they literally scoured off mountaintops to dig coal, to strip mine on the surface with huge bucket loaders coal. So building a house is somewhat better than just stripping the landscape for coal. True. John? I, I posted something in the Skype chat window. You can see there's just an image there as well. Yes, John, please. Well, um, I'd like to mention something a little different. Last week on Saturday Night Live, they had, the the sketch was so funny and clever. It was Jeff Bezos. Oh, yes. Branson. (laughs) Did you see that, Richard? No, I missed it. Elon Musk. Oh, my God. I was laughing. uh, It's a must-see for folks uh, or fans of the show. Well, that's really important because, remember, anything that Saturday Night Live features becomes a meme. Don't everybody speak at once? Okay, three minutes. Ron? Oh, I muted myself. said Lex Luthor in real life is actually Zuckerberg. Everybody knows this. (laughs) If he ever loses that, if he ever goes bald, uh, run for the bunker. Uh, Bezos wants to be Lex Luthor, but all he is is bald. Uh, That's... um, Meow. Yeah, I I just... uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm speechless about some of this. I can't imagine how, I can't believe how much time we spent detailing this one crater. If you people only knew, but it is, it is something unique. And if it, um, uh, yeah, it's artificial, Tim, it's, it's whatever it is. It's art, it's artificial. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, Richard, um, the, how deep, cause I, I think I know the answer but the uh, in the ancient past when Mars supposedly had an uh, ocean, back yeah. then they say it did. Yes. Uh, it none of it was very deep, so you're not going to get a lot of cetaceans, at least not gigantic whales, uh, swimming around in the where because the water would be too shallow. Uh, that's a whole other that's conversation. A- um, 
It is. A- it Andrew, is, and we've we got really 30 know. seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I want folks to go and look at these images and get right down on the surface, and you'll find the subtleties. One of the things I did with my sketch, and I was thinking of Ron, is in the foreground I put blocks because you can actually see little rectilinear forms close to this archway that we're thinking is an archway. It's artificial. And the Chinese passed up the opportunity to make history. And, of course, my bigger question is, why did they do that? That, of course, opens a huge can of worms that we don't have time to go into because we're out of runway. Hey, I want to thank all my guests, Ron Gerbron, Andrew Curry, John Womack, Tim Saunders, um, who, am I, who am I leaving out? Uh, Keith was on briefly. Tomorrow night, we're doing a very different program with John again and a very interesting clinical uh, a practitioner, we're talking about reincarnation and why can't you remember when you lived on another planet? So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep watching La Palma. And we are clear. Fun show. Really? Many different directions. And Tim, I loved your ending. I loved your closing ending because it illustrates the process of figuring stuff out. Well, it's, it's just seeing things in a different way, isn't it? Andrew's sketch was able to catalyze a different understanding of the same that's why you have a team. <laughs> mm. That's why you have I a team. I managed to get up your images, Timothy, the crinoid and the mining, so future. Say again, Kinti, I missed the beginning, what, sorry. If, what you put in the chat, the mining and the crinoids, they're up there. Thank you very much. The crinoids was actually uh, uh, Richard. But uh, anyway, oh. but um, it, it's... I think it just, you know, these are all iconic images that expand the mind to see things in different ways. That's the idea. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't um, know. When you talked about the crushed crinoid, I just kept thinking of, um, well, one, Sir Charles, because that's, I think it was the uh, Athena, uh, the... Um, yeah, he came after me. Spirit ones where he got most of his pictures. Yeah, I know that. I know that. I'm just saying he's, you know, he's. That's what. That's all he talks about when he is on the air. <laughs> is the um, uh, those uh, those things, and I it just kept. I just kept visualizing a little um, fishmonger girl going through the market, you know, singing uh, crinides, <laughs> crinides, oh, uh, alive, alive, oh. So I um, I was little distracted out of that but the uh, we've got to cut we've yeah we've got to come to some resolution on this resolution thing because tim is absolutely right the uh, a lot of stuff just doesn't look right uh when it gets put on the web and i i know it's not it's nothing to do with the uh with okay. the show's web page i have to it's jump you, in here please because rich you didn't uh kill the uh 
Guys, Blog Talk. Timothy, the second 